Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 338 with my guest Chelsea Frank. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, being fat shamed by parents, uh, bullied at school, uh, talk about eating disorders, and uh, it's a great episode. I, um, my name, maybe I should start off by introducing myself. I'm Paul Gilmartin, and this, I don't like the way I said my name there. It was weird. I got a little self-conscious. I'm Paul Gilmartin, and this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, This isn't a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Half the show is interview, and the other half is me reading confessions uh, and secrets from listeners uh, through the surveys that people fill out anonymously online. I want to remind you guys, uh, L.A. Podfest is soon approaching, well, semi-soon, <laughs> a couple months away, October 6th through 8th, L.A. Podfest uh, is going to be happening downtown L.A., and for people who are monthly donors uh, through Patreon, uh, I have uh, booked a hotel room that I'm going to be raffling off for monthly donors. So... Um, I'll probably announce in the next week or two exactly how that's that raffle is, is going to take place. But it's a nice hotel. It's the Millennium uh, Hotel in downtown L.A. We finally have a t-shirt vendor. Yay! And 
a shirt that I can't wait for uh, for you guys to see. Uh, those of you that are new to the show, uh, one of my dogs passed away about a month and a half ago, and uh, his name was Herbert. And uh, the new T-shirt vendor and I uh, came up with the design to honor him, and it's an adorable picture of his face, and the T-shirt says, St. Herbert. Um, I'll put a link on the show notes for, uh, for this episode, but if you go to our website, uh, mentalpod.com, and then you look under, uh, support the show, there'll be a little drop down menu and it'll say buy stuff. If you click on that, then you'll see how to buy t-shirts, but we have other things. We have t-shirts that have the mental illness happy hour logo. We have a couple of sayings, uh, from the show, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've been thinking the weirdest thoughts occur to me when I when I meditate. Uh, 99% of the time, it's just me thinking about myself uh, with my eyes closed. But um, I, I was meditating this morning, and a thought popped into my head that, how do I explain this? There have been times in the past where I looked at uh, pornography compulsively in a way that I felt um, ate into my life, kind of sat, sapped my energy, left me feeling like a loser, etc. Um, and lately, if I do look at uh, pornography, it's it's um, you know maybe for fifteen minutes uh, it accomplishes its goal, and it seems like it can fall into two different camps. Uh, at least for the way, um, if if I am in the mode of looking at pornography, whether it's either a way of uh, you know just finding some type of release so I can fall asleep, or you know uh, just have a release, or and this is the one that seems to be problematic is a way of escaping feelings that I don't want to feel. And that usually seems to be the times when it's compulsive, where it'll, you know, be hours of looking at it and then feeling shame and uh, not getting enough sleep, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was meditating this morning, I was thinking to myself, what, what, what is it in me or other people that would look at pornography for you know, four or five hours in a row. It's, yeah, I think it's the dopamine, you know, the high of of looking at that and the high of searching for something that's really going to do it for you, uh, air quotes. And and I'm wondering if there's like a, a form of perfectionism that that is emotional, you know what I mean? Like searching for the perfect orgasm. Because when I when I do say, okay, I'm just going to do this for, you know, 15 minutes. I'm going to take care of business, as my friend Jimmy Pardo would uh, would call it. Um, I, th- I think it's like I surrender to the fact that I'm that there probably is a better clip that I'm going to uh, that I won't be finding. And and I'm okay with that. But I I wonder if when we're doing that compulsive thing, how much of it is an escape from feelings that we don't want to feel and how much of it is the delusion that this time spent searching for a perfect clip is worth the time because 
we're going to find orgasmic perfection. I don't know. But uh, speaking of my crazy brain, uh, our sponsor is BetterHelp.com. And I love my BetterHelp.com counselor. Her name is Donna, and she's awesome. We've been working together about a year now. And um, I I can't say enough good things about it. Um, you can try a, a free week of online counseling. Uh, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Uh, complete a questionnaire, and then you'll get matched with a BetterHelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week uh, to see if online counseling is right for you. you got to be over 18. And uh, once again, the, the web address is BetterHelp.com slash mental. It's important to go to the, to include the slash mental, because then they'll know that you come, you came from this show, and, um, and then they will hopefully continue to uh, support the show like they, they have been every week um, for the last six months. I want to read an awfulsome moment. For those of you that are new to the podcast, awfulsome is a, is a term we coined uh, for something that was awful at the time. Uh, but after some distance from it, uh, there's something kind of awesome about it also. Uh, and this was filled out by a woman who ca- calls herself Strokes of Genius. And she writes, My mother-in-law is a rare, interesting creature. She means well, but I have a hard time with her because of how shitty she was to my husband. Anyhow, we were over at her home, and my husband was out in the garage drinking a beer with his dad. Each time I visit, my mother-in-law and I talk about the new things she's bought. She's had some issues with self-esteem and gaining weight because of med changes, etc. The newest outfit on the agenda was a pair of leggings and a tunic, something that I wear regularly. She wanted to, quote, model them, so so she went to change. I'm waiting patiently while thinking it's sort of endearing, but also simultaneously weird that she wanted to dress like me. She comes out, looks cute enough, and wanted to show me the detail on the back of her tunic. When she finished, she turned to face me, lifted her tunic, and as I am eye-level with her crotch, asks me, Do I have a camel toe? I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting, different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Akinzai in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. I'm here with Chelsea Frank, who is a uh, writer, uh, comedian. Um, You've listened to the podcast. Yes. Um, And I looked at uh, some of your Twitter feed, and uh, I saw one joke in particular uh, where I was like, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Do you know which joke I'm I'm talking about? The one you have pinned. Oh, yeah. yeah. I have my father's green eyes and my mother's inability to love a small child. That one? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
feel like that just gives a lot of how an introduction right off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so where do we start with your story? Uh, where are you from? How old are you? I'm 24. I'm from Los Angeles, actually. Okay. I'm a native. Um, I lived away for like eight or nine years, though. So I got some... I got to be outside of this bubble. Um, I actually went to boarding school. So I left when I was like 14. Okay. And do you know Idlewild? Uh, Idlewild Arts Academy? Idlewild's like three hours from here in the mountains above Palm Springs. And it's like this little hippie um, artist commune school that I got to go to. Was uh, it a high school? Yeah. It was like fame. You know, one of it's like that. <laughs> and so, uh, except for like way gayer and mm-hmm. more foreign. So it was... Uh, <laughs> It was really fun. Um, went there for high school, and then I went back east for school, for college, and then like lived in a couple third world countries, which is like the whitest thing I could ever say. <laughs> and uh, and then I came back a couple years ago. What uh, were you doing in the third world countries? Um, so in college, I spent a summer in India doing nonprofit work, and then um, when, after I graduated college... I went and did some documentary work in Uganda, in East wow. Africa, which was really awesome. It was so awesome. Let's let's jump into to that stuff. Uh, yeah, it was let's great. Ju- jump into <laughs> sure. the, uh, the, or maybe we should hold off on that until we know more uh, about you and what led you to to want to cool. do something sure. like that. Uh, so, what was uh, home life like? Well, let me ask you this before before you do that. Give me some broad strokes of issues that you struggle with and negative self-talk you have about yourself. Oh, cool. I'm assuming yeah, yeah. there's negative self-talk. No, I'm like a, I'm like super, I like love myself and like I'm just here. <laughs> I'm, just here. I'm just a comedian just because like I don't want to make life harder for myself. Um, it's too easy. Um, no, I, I went to rehab actually for an eating disorder a couple years ago. So I feel like that's probably the most... Um, the most I've done work on any mental illness of mine, because I feel like I've got a few going on, but that is definitely one of the big themes in my life is food issues and um, really unhealthy habits surrounding food. Um, and probably underneath that is just a lot, really low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a weird, like, it's weird for me to talk about my childhood in any, it, it was so conflicting. You know, like I can't ever really say it was any too much of any one thing because, you know, I had a lot of really good parts of my childhood and really privileged parts of my childhood that I'm really thankful for. And then I had some really weird, strange, uh, really unhealthy dynamics um, and weird relationships and um, just, you know... It's it, it was so so many mixed messages. I think that ninety percent of us are nodding our heads and going, "Me too, yeah. me too," which is why it's so hard because you don't want to feel like you're throwing somebody under the bus because there were good things. Right. Um, but I think it's it's not about saying. Did this ultimately wind up being a good or bad childhood? You know, as if you're weighing the scales of of justice. I think it's just about processing the stuff that was negative and keeping in mind that there was stuff that there, that there was positive. Give me, give me some beautiful moments with, uh, uh, your, your family, cherished, uh, kind of memories that you have of, um, growing up. 
Yeah, well, um, we have a family movie that we always watch together whenever we were all together. How many kids? Uh, there's my two older sisters. Okay. Which is interesting because we're all really different. Um, if I say all because it feels like 10, there's like 10 kids. With three daughters, it feels like a lot more. Um, uh, yeah, we, we would watch like Father of the Bride together. That's like a family movie. And those were always really nice moments because, um, you know, there was just such, uh, there's a lot of fighting and chaos and my parents had a weird, a bad marriage. And so it was like, but that movie coming like always, and it was so funny. We knew every word and we would always act it out. And Steve Martin's brilliant. So like just that kind of comedy, uh, coming together to watch that movie was always like really special. We would go on like family vacations, except for those were always just really stressful. Did your dad enjoy <laughs> watching uh, father? Oh, it's his like favorite movie ever. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. My dad's really funny. And, and that's, I mean, he, he will mess with us. Like if we have boyfriends and, uh, he'll, he'll imitate the same kind of like meeting the boyfriend scene, um, <laughs> from that movie. But yeah, I don't know. We had a lot of, we had family vacations that were special. My dad and I've had a lot of really, um, I'm closer with my dad. I don't have a relationship with my mom right now. So it's harder for me sometimes to think back on, on good moments with my mom, but I know there were. Is that by choice? Uh, yeah. And I, I think with her, it's, I, you know, it's not a forever thing. I think I just need time away from her. Yeah. I think I finally was like, I need space from you to like figure out who I am without you. And which is hurtful to people, but I think with, you know, my parents are separated now and they're finally when splitting they, up. When did they? Um, a, couple, a year and a half ago. Okay. After 32 years. Wow. Which was like, ugh, are you kidding me? Um, but <laughs> way to do it, like after you put us through. I mean, thank you for making me funny, but like I'll be on that, <laughs> you know, could I could have done this 20 years ago. But um, so when they split up, I kind of distanced myself a lot from her. Because it was, it's just easier to now. So I, I take it that you, if you were to pick somebody's side, uh, you would pick your dad's side? It's not really like that because I don't, it's not that one person did something huge and that's what, you know, what, it's just that they weren't, you know, my mom, I think a lot of it was, you know, when my, my dad started hearing about some of the things that had happened with me and my sisters, um, like some of the things my mom had done. Uh, and hurt us really badly. That was just too much for him. Um, what What were some of the things? Well, I'm so you know I'm so cautious right now because my dad is really private. He's a really private person, and I don't. I'm fine with talking about myself, but I get a little bit more uncomfortable because I know that he he's not coming on this podcast. He doesn't. Mm -hmm. really, you know, I don't want to air his shit out. But I think that personally with me and my mom my mom was really hard on me about my weight and she was um she i was an actor she, she's a talent manager was a talent manager and i was an actor as a kid and she was my manager this is like a walking platitude story i mean i'm, I'm a jew from the from the valley with like entertainment industry parents who like was an actor it's like got an eating disorder it's like just such a 
I'm a textbook. Um, How could you not have a dis- an eating disorder? I mean, there's just no like I I would feel left out if I, I hadn't. Yeah. I <laughs> I would have said be- <laughs> you weren't you weren't paying attention in I your know, childhood right? <laughs> if you have a healthy view of your body and a I know okay relationship with food. You must have been asleep. I know. I honestly, I I would have if even if I had turned out fine, I would have like pretended to have one just to be like part of the club. Um, but but no, she. It was just it was classic. You know, she. I was really overweight as a kid. My sisters were both thinner. I went to a school that was um, like an LA prep school where everybody was famous or their kids were famous. Or, you know, the kids mm-hmm. were famous or their parents and money and industry and so Hollywood. And that's such a shitty thing for like 13-year-old girls and boys to be it's exposed to. As if there isn't enough pressure to fit in already. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, and then so... So a lot of it was, um, I was really badly bullied, like objectively, I've told people stories of like the bullying that went on that are, it's crazy. I look back on it and I'm like, that's insane. I can't believe that stuff happened to a 13 year old. And I had no idea how wildly crazy it was. Well, now you have to share it. Well, yeah. Um, so I was, I was, <laughs> I had everything from like, um, kids would take like naked photos of me, uh, while I was changing for like what? TE and then post them online and like what? circle body parts, like fat You've rolls. Gotta be kidding me. And just like, yeah, no. And, and like I, when live journal, remember live journal? No. Live journal was like pre MySpace. Oh, okay. Um, and or maybe at the same time, I don't know. And it was like, uh, what it sounds like. It was like a journal or diary. Um, and it was like blog posts. It was kind of like Tumblr. Uh, and so they would just post it to that and then they would make fake MySpaces and post those pictures on there. And they were like blurred out, you know, of my, of like my private areas, but, but they would circle like my stomach hanging over my pants as I was changing. Um, that, they would pee is... in Ziploc bags and put them through the slits of my locker and leave it open so that when they when they put the bags over, it would get all over my luncheon books and stuff. I mean, like, really go out. It was just like nuts and so elaborate. Like, that's so elaborate and detailed. Like, I would never even think of doing something like that to somebody. What what, what kind of a kid do, does something? What do you think the home life is of a kid that does something like that? I don't. I don't know because I, um, you know, I like. I'm still kind of afraid of those girls. This many years later, I've, I've seen them around LA. Uh, I, and I, I remember one time I, I saw one of those girls who had done that. And this was like a few years ago. Um, this was probably like when I was like 18 or 19. And I, uh, saw her at like the Sherman Oaks Galleria and I like hid in the bathroom, like in middle school. It was really wild. I was like, wow, I guess I'm totally not over this because she still scares me. But, uh. Is this before you went to Idlewild? This was after. I mean, I went from... Oh, so yeah, yeah. This is before Idlewild. This was like eighth grade. Okay. Yeah. So it was just really weird. I mean, these kids were crazy. And I I have a joke in my stand-up about how like I was bullied a lot as a kid. And now I totally get where they were coming from or something (laughs) like that. Because I was... I I can look back and be like, oh, I instigated a lot of stuff. I was really dramatic. And I cried nonstop. And I was an easy target. But still... And I was... but, But I was really ugly. Like convention you know for a 13 year old kid we're all kind of awkward but i was like for la i was a nightmare and so and really overweight and um not that i assumed not that i think that being overweight is synonymous with being ugly but for a 13 year old kid in la that was to them very ugly you know 
And so, yeah, it was just, so it was the weight thing. And, um, yeah, they, the bullying was really crazy. And I, I just remember like my mom kind of reinforced that instead of being like, you know, you shouldn't change yourself for what other people want you to be, or, you know, don't lose weight. She would be like, well, you know, they have a point, like if you would lose weight, they would stop bullying you. What did that feel like when she said that? Now in my adult year, like now going through therapy and treatment and all this, I can see as she was trying to be a protective mother and looking at her kid who was being bullied and, and not fitting in and was like, well, I don't want her to be bullied anymore. I want her to have friends. So if she loses weight, it's like a win-win, you know? And so I think that that's, I can understand that while I don't think that's the best way of going about it as a parent. I mean, I understand logically, but as a 13 year old, it's like, I felt, I felt like it was coming at me from all sides, you know, like it just felt at school, I wasn't good enough. And at home, I wasn't good enough. And it was like a constant thing at the dinner table of, you know, we would eat out a lot. And, um, just my sisters were able to order things with no problem. And like, I would, it would get to me and she would just stare at me and like, what did that feel like? It's so violating because eating is such a personal thing. You know, it's, it's such a personal thing. And, um, it's going to the bathroom in reverse. That's beautiful. I have it. I have it crocheted. If you'd like a copy, I would, I would like a shirt and a hat. Um, yeah, it's just so, and it's just, it's really weird. It's like, my sister could order whatever she wanted and it was fine because she was skinny. But I was like, it was just, and it was so, she, my mom is like, she has no poker face. So, you know, she just had to say something always. Like, And would anybody come to your defense? I mean... It, it, no, it, it was I'm not what, faulting them. No, no, I, I, for, I don't even know how to answer it really because I don't think I even, I didn't show how much it bothered me. You know, I don't think anyone knew like the, what it was doing to me, even though it seems like it would be obvious mm-hmm. now. It was so like, you know, and my dad would kind of like yell at me about my body and about eating better. You know, my mom would would tell him, tell my father, you know, say something to her she listens to you and so he would end up having to like scream at me about you shouldn't be eating this you shouldn't be eating that you need to lose weight and it's like it came largely from her um your mom sounds pretty controlling yeah she has an image about what she wants what what she thinks matters and her values and she has an image about what her daughter should look like and be like and it's pretty narcissistic huh yeah, she's she's so afraid. I think my mom is so afraid of of so many things, and I'm just like, uh, it, we, you know, we. She's very anxious and nervous, and you know, and I, I insecure and very insecure, and you know, she was always chasing someone's approval, and so I don't. I just think that she looked at me and she saw a lot of herself. And didn't want me to turn out like her, which I really believe. I really think that, you know, she just saw I was the heaviest of the, of us three girls and she struggled with her weight. And I think she just didn't want me to feel like she did, but went about it totally the wrong way. I've, I've never met a woman who wasn't negatively affected by 
being raised by a mom who had <laughs> body image slash weight issues um, or a parent that commented on the child's body in specific ways, yeah. you know, um, not, uh, you know, the good way of saying, you know, everybody's body is unique and we should learn to love ourselves and fuck anybody that, you know, uh, makes you feel bad about your body. That would, I think is a great way to talk about the body. But when, when people get specific, even to say like to, to a kid, boy, you have just a beautiful butt or your chest is so, you know, great. You're going to have so many boyfriends or, you know, or, yeah. um, it just, it fucks kids up because and, then they're yeah. like, Oh, this is such an important thing about me. Seriously. And I also feel like a lot of moms, the way they talk about themselves and even if they don't talk about their kids, but they talk about, they look yes. at themselves in the mirror and they're like, I look fat. I look horrible. And when you're a child, your parents are God to you. That's like mm -hmm. the way that we have to view our parents is that, and especially as a daughter looking at her mom, it's like, if I come from you and you're like this everything being in my life, you're God to me and you hate your own body, then like, am I supposed to hate my body? Do I have a chance? Do I look, <laughs> yeah. if, do, if I look like you, everyone tells me I look like you, does that mean that I have a horrible X, Y, Z? Like, I think parents often don't realize that the way they talk about themselves is just, if not more important sometimes than the way they I, talk about their kids. I agree. Or to their kids. I completely agree. Um, but yeah, that's why I think parents shouldn't even talk to their kids. Yeah, that's why I think we should just not have kids. Yeah, um, I love my kids so much that I'm not having them. <laughs> uh, I think I think you should have kids, but I think you should take them to the desert and let them find their own way. I think you should just let infants raise other infants. That's not a bad idea. See what um, happens. They will certainly uh, learn the importance of life skills. Yeah. Or not. I'm just imagining like a bunch of Moseses in a river. Just a ton. <laughs> babies in baskets. I don't know why. It's like the only image I have in my head now. It's like a, sea, like a pond of babies in baskets. Um, anyway. So, yeah. That's a lot about my... Yeah. So, any, any more of the bullying things? We don't touch on that a tremendous amount in the in the podcast, on. and I think it's a really important uh, topic. Is there, is there? Can you talk more about? Yeah, because um, I feel like that's a huge part of all of my shit. Um, is is I had a I had a hard time socially, and so, so and it doesn't and end when you fears, get out of school. The you know the ripples I think go on for. Yeah, a long time, even after you're not around those people. I mean, obviously, you, when you were at the gallery and you were afraid of that. I have and I have girl. my fears are so based in 12 year old me, like, you know, social social anxieties I have are they would not happen now They are my life is not set up like a school of 100 kids. You know, I it's it's totally different in adulthood, but I still have weird social fears. Mm hmm. That are totally from like a 13 year old self. What was the school that you went to where the bullying uh, took place? If you're comfortable saying, or would you rather not? I don't, I would rather not. Okay. Um, but it was here in LA. It's one of the private schools in LA. Uh, but, but bullying wasn't just there. It was just, it came to a head. That was probably the worst year. Eighth, eighth grade was probably the worst year of my, you know, childhood. I'd Did say. you have suicidal thoughts? Yeah. And I remember early as five having suicidal thoughts. Which is really weird. I told a therapist about I call, that. I just call that precocious. 
I just, yeah, just like, that just tells me you're going to be smart. If I see, I maybe sick kids sometimes and I had this like really depressed five-year-old boy and I was like, you get it. Yeah. yeah. He knows how you to weigh it. options at an early age. I would like, he, I'd get him ready for school and I, he would just be like, I would w- try to wake him up and he would just stare at the ceiling and be like, I need a minute. He was five, and I was like, I just, I see myself in you. I love you. Oh, um, my God. But, yeah, where were we? Oh, the bullying. Um, yeah, I mean, social, I always, I, since I was, like, in school, I've dealt with bullying. I think here in L.A., and especially in the Valley, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic going on here. Um, it seems like, I'm... Maybe that's wrong, but I was going to say it seems like uh, when you throw uh, money into the mix, which tends to have a lot of parents who are workaholics and don't pay attention to their kids, uh, it, it seems like it's an even riper environment uh, or you know, an area where there's huge amounts of drug addiction and yeah. the kids aren't being paid attention to. It, those, those two just seem to be the... The most vulnerable, because uh, in my opinion, that's where a lot of the meanness comes. Is those kids take that 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 anger that their parents aren't paying attention to them, oh, or yeah. or they're giving them attention that is abusive. Yeah, they just have access to so many things that um, most kids don't have access to. Like I know, you know, the girls in eighth grade, seventh eighth grade, were doing cocaine and like having sex, and it's just like. You know, I know kids younger and younger are getting into that, um, but it. I was always like really scared of that stuff. I was more, uh, I was terrified of drugs, absolutely terrified of drugs. I remember the first time I smoked weed. I weed. I felt so guilty for a year, and then I cried to my dad in a Baja Fresh about it. I like admitted it randomly when I was like thirteen, and I was like, I'm so sorry, and like I'm sobbing into like a burrito bowl, and I'm just crying, crying. I was like so guilty about that stuff. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I just, uh, always felt like one day, okay. I think the mixed messages thing was like one day I would come to school and I'd have a lot of friends and everything would be great. Mm -hmm. And the next day nobody would talk to me. And it was so confusing to me because I never knew like what I was doing or what was going on that was turning people for or against me. And I think I carry that into now. Like I'm always like, people can just flip one day like maybe tomorrow you know my closest friend will hate me and like i have this weird fear of like you know being myself turns people so hot and cold and every and people will be like that's not that's everyone that's not you know that's not a a rational fear to have but i'm like i don't know it seemed to be happening all the time in school would it be a bad time for me to say that i was expecting more out of this interview and i'd just like to go ahead and wrap things up um is there a cliff nearby (laughs) do you have a gun could i shoot myself in the face i hear currently so many stories of girls at that age where one day all of a sudden their group of friends completely turns on them it's so weird and you know it's it's so like i think about this stuff and i think it's like oh you know you hear the stories of bullying and it's like we get, you know, the PSAs and whatever, but it's so tr- it's so real because who you are at that age, it's the biggest deal in the world if you don't have friends or if you're alone at school. Like 
it is the end of the world because that is your entire, you don't have a job and a life and friends and a lot, you know, or, you know, a a sense of self, a sense of self and a life that you can, you know, pick and choose different friend circles and stuff like that. I mean, your whole world is going to school and going home and then being online and talking to your friends from school and like that kind of thing. That's really it. So it's, and to be that young and, and not know uh, who you are at all and there's everything's changing and, you know, you're awkward and just, it is such a big deal. And then those wounds are that age until you heal them. So you can be 45 years old with a seven-year-old wound inside of you that just like still has never healed itself. And so that's why I'm like, so um in therapy recently, just been like, I've never talked more about that stuff than I am now because I'm like, I don't want to be... I don't want to be like a mom one day and like do some weird shit to my kid because I've like never resolved my 10 year old weird school bullying self, you know? Um, but yeah, I think so that stuff, I mean, it was just, you know, a lot of name calling and uh, most, most of the time it was all centered out on what I look like. It was my weight. Um, that was a primary, a primarily like what, what was, um, people's problems with me and so when (laughs) when you would hear those things would you um believe what they were saying yeah because i also felt that way about myself i i was like uh and and also my mom was putting me on diets and how did did you feel about those would you would you give it an effort or did you were you like rebelling against it no who wants to feel like they can't just be a part of the group who i mean being on the zone diet when you're like nine it's just and when your kids your friends are eating like pizza and ice cream because they're nine and you're like having to eat these weird prepackaged meals that you get delivered to your home like you're some 30 year old housewife it's really weird uh so no it was it sucked it really sucked but i also wanted to lose weight and so it was a strange thing of like you know who who do you think like learns you know kids don't just like pick up bad eating habits out of nowhere i mean your family teaches you these bad quote bad habits and then they shame you for it and make you feel like it's your fault and that you're like fundamentally flawed for being a certain way that you learned from them so <laughs> it's crazy um so yeah that was not it was hard it was really hard and then uh they go t- tra- changing to that school was a nightmare truly a nightmare because i was um the first year i was there was fine i had a few friends and i was kind of one of like i was a little under the radar idlewild you mean no 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 no. changing to the to the oh going to the bullying school going to the where it got really bad yeah oh okay um that was hard because like the first year i was there was fine so the school before that wasn't as bad i'm talking about like you know i I remember getting bullied uh, as soon as kindergarten Jesus. Yeah, yeah. This is like, it's always been weird, which is why I felt always that it was me because it was so pervasive. Give me some of the, the negative uh, thoughts that are still in your head to this day uh, about yourself that you had when you were uh, that age or that have grown since that age. Um, That like are still very much from. Yeah. The greatest hits of negative uh, things you say. That, <laughs> the greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna start a podcast of just like my inner dialogue. Um, I I think that I'm too much. I'm obnoxious. 
um, that I'm not good enough. Any particular things you think you're not good enough at? Just generally. In general. Like, I think I, that's one of my biggest problems with myself, which is where a lot of the eating disorder stuff comes from. When is, you have been successful at something, do you think that you're a bit of a fraud? Uh, or are you able to take pride in it? I can, like, for a, for a little while, be take pride in it. But to me, it's always like, well, somebody else did it better. I'm so much better than I used to be, though. It's it's this past year, this past couple years since treatment, I've it's been a lot better. I'm able to fight with myself more. You know, like I think that's the first stage. That's is, it, yeah, is, I'm is able standing to have, up to that voice and saying, yeah. you know, that's not true. I did I did this, even though if you don't believe it, at least thinking that that positive thought about yourself um, is the. Yeah, I had a therapist once just call just, you know, because I'm very like, I can't do the Mooney stuff. I can't, you know, be all like miss, miss positivity all the time. And just like I couldn't some some parts of treatment were very like kumbaya body and soul. And I just couldn't get on board. That with stuff it. leaves me just oh, rolling my eyes. It's like it just ugh, please. Um, And so I had a therapist that was really helpful where he was like, just fact check it. It just treat it like fact. Like so, if you have a, a thought or a belief about yourself or an event's going on, and you're assuming that everybody's thinking X Y Z about you, just go with the facts of like what's happening and what evidence you have to support it or go against it. And then you don't have to feel like you're lying to yourself. You're just checking yourself. And that's uh, it's it sounds I don't. But it was a really useful thing for me to be like, I won't feel like if I fight with myself that I'm bullshitting myself. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just lying to myself. I'm going to feel like I'm just trying to be a, more of like a, almost like a journalist or like yeah. a detective about my own belief system. That, that's why I think leading a principled life and having ways that we can be of service and maybe try to make the world a slightly better place is so, so important. Because not only does it help build your self-esteem, but it opens up um, the reality that it's not all about what other people think of you and that it's not all about you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. That, I know that, what you mean. Um, and that oftentimes people's weird behavior is entirely about their own shit or their own yeah. day or where they just came from. Or um, Like I have a tendency to just assume that everybody had a great day before they saw me. <laughs> you know, like I was the thing that set them off into this horrible mood when in reality people are just like... That is fantastic. That is such, <laughs> such a... That is such a fucked up, self-loathing and yet narcissistic at the same so time. So narcissistic. Yeah, I'm it's a like, piece of shit the world revolves around. Totally. I'm it's so self-absorbed. My toxicity is so potent yeah, that I'm so taking gross. other people down with me. Oh, it's I so, love that. It's so gross. Like it it really is disgusting. I I don't think I've ever met somebody who who you know if it's always about them, I've never met a happy person who who makes it all about them. The happiest people I know are the ones that find ways to get out of themselves and be yeah. of, and be of use, and that seems to calm them down. And I think for many, many years, I thought I need to think about myself more because I need a better plan to feel good. Yeah. And I thought it involved thinking more about myself when in reality that was the thing that was sending me in the wrong direction was I was too self-absorbed. 
Very true. Yeah. And that's not to say I'm not self-absorbed anymore, but I'm less <laughs> yeah, self-absorbed. Yeah. But let's talk about me. Please. Go let's ahead. Please. You were going to say something. No, and I think also part of it is like when people... I'm also 24. Like sometimes I'm like, am I mentally ill? I'm just in my 20s. <laughs> That's that's so going in the opening montage. <laughs> okay. Of, of I really am confused. Like I was the other night I was at a party and somebody was like, "How are you?" and I was like, "I'm 24. Like I'm either the best I've ever been or the worst I've ever been. Like and probably in my life, you know, it's like we're such a high low period that I'm like, "Ugh, maybe I'm just so stereotypically in my mid 20s." The fact that you're in therapy though, and you've gone to uh, a rehab for your eating disorder and that you set boundaries with your mom. Um, I mean, that's that's a good sign. That's thank you. Yeah, I'm, it's hard. It's I'm working on it. I'm really trying to like. I just don't want to like. I think I'm addicted to a story about myself. I think it's like I. I went through treatment and I went all the stuff and I thought I was addicted to this and that and food. And I thought it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to this person. I'm addicted to this, whatever. And I think I'm just addicted to this story that I have created for myself or that I am this like, uh, like it's hot mess, you know? I heard somebody say one time, uh, this guy said, I realized one day that I'm an epiphany junkie. <laughs> that he's just constantly looking for aha moments as if that's going to solve it and then i realized well that moment even in it of itself is proof that i'm an epiphany junkie having an epiphany that i'm an epiphany junkie i know right that's so yeah. meta that's so meta so meta but I, I think there can be a tendency with with uh, those of us that ruminate to want everything to be a grand revelation instead of really in reality what most of life is is barely imperceptible little spurts of growth that build on each other that may not even feel good at the time but yeah. two years from now we go oh if i hadn't gone through that shitty thing i wouldn't have learned this thing that i'm going to use now in this situation to protect myself absolutely i mean probably um the things that I have seen, I think what's helping me ride these waves of depression, ride the waves of, um, cause my eating disorder is probably the worst it's been since treatment. It's right now. Right it's, now. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's been really hard lately. I'm sorry. It's okay. I mean, it's, you know, what I feel like the positive part of it is, is that I used to get so wrapped up in my feelings. Like, in the cycle like i would i would get in a depressive episode and it would all consume me and it would just be like i can't get out of bed i have to i can't work i can't do anything and i and i and i believe wholeheartedly that people go through those spouts mm -hmm. of depression um and and i'm i'm not going to qualify what i'm saying I, I i just for me personally it was i used to get so absorbed in it and now i and with eat, my eating behaviors because i my behaviors are um so for my childhood i was overweight i was a lot of binge eating and then i went to fat camp so my my eating disorder has gone from fat camp <laughs> to treatment for anorexia the whole spectrum of food problems and weight issues you can have um and so is there an award for that i want one i feel like <laughs> come on let's make this more about me um but i yeah so i went to 
uh, or, or what I was saying is now um, I'm able to like see, have a little distance from your feelings. This, yeah. A little more distance from my feelings, a little more distance from like, you know, when I'm going through a depressive episode, it's not quite as um, like, I don't let myself soak in it as much. It, uh, I had never realized that you could um, distance yourself from your thoughts and your feelings and observe them and not feel like this is me. This is who I am. Yeah. This is a template of what the future is going to to be like. And, um, and reading Eckhart Tolle really, really helped me with that to take the um, to just observe, to, to detach from um judging what mm -hmm. it is that we're feeling and it's it's helped me embrace the fact that i live with uh, depression uh it's helped me not judge myself which then doesn't exacerbate it right you know through f either self-loathing or you know shaking my fist at the sky why does this have to be my lot in life that i have this depression that keeps me frozen yeah. um i think that's a really really important thing is to understand that your feelings aren't who you are yeah and I feel like with those, definitely with depression, with eating and all that, e eating is so, so hard. It's so gray area. You know, I think with a lot of mental illnesses, there's such a black and white or addictions are such black and white. Um, like with, with alcohol or drugs, it's like, just don't use. And that's, and you, there's such a measure of how you're doing in your recovery. Cause it's like, it's been 10 days. It's been 10 years. It's been mm -hmm. 50 years since I had a drink and you can very easily measure how it's going you you don't have to but with food it's like what am i supposed to say it's hi i'm chelsea it's been two years since i ate like you're it's really a weird thing to people to people that about. aren't yeah go ahead no yeah it's just it's it's a such a relationship fix because you know like in in rehab um it's the, like food rehab is the only rehab where they give you your problem six times a day and you have to like deal with it all day long. You know, they don't give you like cocaine and cocaine rehab. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a weird, a really weird thing. And, and everybody has a different opinion about what healthy diet is. And, and plus the nature of addiction is black and white thinking. Yeah. And to learn nuanced, you know, proportions are a version of nuance. Yeah. And everybody disagrees. Yeah, we have like a bajillion dollar industry because nobody can agree on what's healthy. Yeah. So it's really um, confusing because I don't ever know what's my, you know, own in, uh, intuitive eating and what's my eating disorder masking itself as intuitive eating. And, and, I, th and I think the other thing that's difficult about uh, eating disorders is that it's it's a disorder that you wear your wreckage where it's visible yeah. I, you know, I imagine sometimes what it would have been like for me at the worst of my drinking if i'd had to have all the beer cans trailing behind me yeah you know on a big string but that is one of the biggest mis misconceptions about eating disorders is that they are very like you can tell because i weighed about what i weigh now when i entered rehab and i look normal normal quote i mean why do you why do you say normal quote because, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, a lot of people, they think you can see an eating disorder. I see. As, you know, you're incredibly emaciated and very, you know, or super skinny and then that, that's an eating disorder. But if somebody's overweight or average body type or I don't even know, whatever words we use right. for it, then they're not sick. They don't have an eating disorder. Right. 
the some of the sickest people I've ever met were not necessarily the thinnest or the heaviest. Right. They most girls in eating in my treat in my rehab looked like like you wouldn't think twice. You would they mm-hmm. just were average bodies, but the sickest people I've ever met. And so it's still a mental illness. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people have is that you can see it and you can tell. Um because and that also fucks with your eating disorder a lot because you're like dying to look like you have one. <laughs> it's such an intention thing. And so I, you know, if you're not totally bone skinny, you can, you'll convince yourself you don't even have an eating disorder because other people are like, you look normal to me. And you can't look at the actions around it to Yeah, I mean, but qualify. you're so, you're so, you're you so know. wrapped up in. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it becomes it's completely who you are. Talk, so go ahead. Talk about your eating disorder, how it manifests itself, when it started, what it looks like, how it's progressed. Okay. Um, yeah. So since I was a kid, I don't remember a time where I wasn't weird with food. I truly don't. Like I can remember being five and having a very strange feeling around food and shame around food and embarrassment, hiding food, um, like not wanting other people to watch me eat. And it was so largely because of, you know, the dynamics in my family. Uh, and then, so I was always heavier um, growing up. And when you would, uh, did you binge then as a as I would a kid? binge, but I also just ate poor, like I had poor nutritional habits, I guess you could say. Would you get a release, uh, a temporary release from, from eating yeah, I, I think I felt really bad about myself and food made me feel better temporarily. Uh, I also just, it's what I knew. Like my family didn't eat very healthily. Mm-hmm. And so I just kind of, it's what I knew. It's what I copied from seeing them eat. But because my sisters were thin, uh, it was fine. And I was always like, why can't I eat like them? Do you think there was also a high um, in having something that was your secret? I don't know that it was that okay. conscious. Maybe. Because I've heard people say that. And I know for me, when I was um, uh, smoking a lot of weed, I would almost get high on the ride from the back from the drug dealer's house with an ounce of weed on me um, because it just felt like, I don't know, like this little mission that I had gone on. And now I knew I had weed for the next week. And and I would think my mood would would lift when I'm in line for coffee. I, the five seconds before I put my order in, I'm never in a bad mood. I'm like talking to people because I know <laughs> I'm going to get out of myself for the next two hours. I'm going to have a coffee buzz. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And, I, and I've heard people talk about um, having that secret. It's their little thing. So I was just wondering if that was the case with you. I don't think at that point. Okay. I think maybe later on, but I don't know when as a, as a child I was aware. I think most of my food, me being overweight and, and the food habits were just what I knew. It's the, it's what I was taught or what was around me. Um, and so to me, it just felt normal to eat like that. But I knew it was not healthy and that it was contributing to me being overweight. But I also was just like, this is what I've always known. Okay. And, um, I also think like food is really good. And kids love, you know, I'm around kids a lot. And it's like kids just love eating. It's like so fun for them. And it's, you know, it's I love like seeing these little girls that I watch. They are so healthy about food and they're so excited about food. And they're always like 
And I just, it's, it kind of, nannying, because <laughs> I nanny during, that's my day job. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it makes me both like more compassionate to my parents and also more hateful because I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, you know, just seeing these kids uh, so normal about food makes me resentful. It's a weird, it's weird. I and totally it, get that. But when- it makes me so resentful because I'm like, I should have been able to be five and enjoyed an ice cream cone. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, watching a kid eat an ice cream cone is the funniest thing you'll ever see. And it's so nice. And these kids like... One in particular I'm thinking of, she ice cream is her favorite thing in the world. And the way she eats an ice cream cone is pure bliss and not an ounce of shame. And like that's what five-year-olds should be doing. And messy as shit. Messy. And they don't feel guilty. And they want more. And like it, they never want it to end. And it's not – there's not – it's not like um, – there's there's no pain in their joy. So, so the first marker for you was shame. Oh, I was so ashamed of it. Okay. I felt like a dirty, gross, disgusting person for eating. So then how, how did so then it progress? Progress, yeah. So then um the so as I just kept getting older and getting heavier, uh I just, you know, I gained more and more weight as the years went on and I was I was pretty chubby. I don't think I was like I was never like obese, but I was pretty heavy up until high school. I went to that boarding school. Um, and I was more accepted there because it was more about your talent and your art and everybody was like kind of the weird person where they came from. That must have felt amazing. It was amazing. I was still teased there sometimes. It was still high school, you know, but I got my first boyfriend and like it was just. What'd that feel like? Oh, my God. Talk about that. Well, I got my first boyfriend in, uh, <laughs> I went to Carnegie Mellon pre-college program, like junior, between junior year and senior year of high school. And I met this nerdy Jew from Maryland. And, uh, yeah, I saw him like the first day and I was like, I'm going to date that guy. And I did. And we were together for like two years. Um, and it was great. It was so, I thought I would never find a boyfriend. That was all I wanted because everybody I knew was dating and I never, like, boys were never interested in me. Um, and I was just like, it's all I wanted. And I was so happy. It was so cute. It was adorable. Our relationship was so like adult and serious. We had such like serious <laughs> discussions and it was like more adult than any relationship I've had in my actual <laughs> adult life. Um, but yeah, that was great. And we stayed together through like the first year of college and uh, it was good. But and he was really accepting of my body. And I this was before I had lost weight. Um, and it was really weird. Were you able to, was, to relax uh, around him in your in your body and not be uptight about it once once you knew that he wasn't judging you i never like let him see me in the light walk around naked but i was more comfortable with him than anybody else and he was really um yeah i didn't it was almost like i didn't believe him and i and i was i didn't believe that he like thought I was beautiful. I, I thought it was just that... So your mean voice was doing its job. Oh, yeah. And I think I was so afraid of ever losing him because I was convinced he was the only guy that would ever love me. What did your mean voice tell you why he was staying with you if uh, you thought he was lying about you being attractive? I thought he was gay. And you were his beard? Mm-hmm. I, re- I mean, he, he was... Yeah, I thought he was gay. I don't think he's gay now, but I thought at the time that he was gay and that I was just, you know, that's really what what I was telling. But I was fine with it because he was kind of my beard, so to speak, of, you know, 
look it, I have a boyfriend and I, I'm, this is such validation and people mm-hmm. will love me and I'm, it's, I am lovable. See mom, like somebody can be with me and not hate me, not think I'm gross. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I just never wanted to, I was like, I, I can't ever let him break up with me because nobody else will ever love me. And did he uh, treat you well? Yeah. I mean, I think he was always like, we were long distance. We were, I was at boarding school and you know, he was, he was back at, at his home and, uh, and then we went to college and went to different colleges, mm-hmm. but we were close by. So we'd visit and like, I, it was always a little bit me more, um, more invested, uh, or just me more needy. I was needy at that time because I like needed the validation constantly and yeah. the reassurance constantly. Cause I was so afraid of it going away. And he was just like more relaxed about it. That was probably what it was. So let's get back to your uh, eating disorder during this time. So let's go back to Idlewild. Um, you felt more comfortable there. Yeah. Um, was your eating disorder uh, still flaring up? Was it bad so then? At that point, this was like all, you know, on the overeating side of my eating mm-hmm. disorder. And yeah, I was consistent. Like my whole adolescence was pretty consistent of overeating and eating poorly. And so was it mostly binging and bad eating? Was there also purging and with, I would go through little periods of I was never a per, like purging was never my one of my behaviors, but um uh there were periods where I would restrict for but I could never like really get it together. <laughs> Say that like I it's like a good thing, but you know, I could never really like commit to anything. That, that is the insidiousness of eating disorders, you know, is that that's yeah. considered a victory. I, I hear, read that on so many surveys that yeah. I'm too weak to have an eating disorder. Yeah. And the thing is, is that I would, I, an eating disorder, you do have an eating disorder if you have any, or that's not true. That's disordered eating, I would say. I think at that point it was more disordered eating than yeah. eating disorder, which like, I think it's important to differentiate between the two because so many people have disordered eating. America has disordered eating, Mm -hmm. but an eating disorder is not, it's like, you you know, you're in, you're in recovery, right? Mm -hmm. There's such a difference between being like a big drinker and an alcoholic. Yeah, I would say it's similar to that where people are disordered, they have disordered eating habits Mm -hmm. where they're like weird about food or they feel guilty about stuff or they're, but it isn't all consuming and so, ruining their lives. So the difference between don't. having an unhealthy relationship with something and being compulsive and addicted yeah. Yeah. to a process or a substance. Yeah. And, and and almost feeling like you don't even know who you are anymore. Like you don't see yourself in, in, in it's it's like your, your full eating disorder self has taken over and it's not even you. But anyway, um, so then I went to college and my first year of college was really hard. And I was like, all right, I can't do this anymore. I need to lose weight because I'm not a diff- like, I, I don't want to be this person anymore. So I went to, I asked my parents if I could go to fat camp because I had known other people who had gone and, uh, and, and, and they were supportive of it, but they were like, you can't gain the weight back. Is fat camp called fat camp? Weight loss camp. Okay. But I mean, everyone cl- calls it fat, fat camp. camp. Okay, I, that's shitty. I shouldn't call it that. But that's what I mean. That's, that's what, what everybody calls that's it. That's what everybody calls it. And I feel like that's what we called it there. You know, I think yeah. it's. I don't. I don't mean anything. I don't mean any harm in it. And it might be harmful. I, I think we know that. Yeah, I think we know your. But I don't want to offend people. Um, well, you pick the wrong show. Yeah, I mean, that's my 
like your mean voice, I'm, man. I'm just like choosing what everybody is taking away. Your from. mean voice I've must have thought, bags under its eyes. Oh, I've already thought like 1,200 different critiques that I can like imagine people are going to think about or well, say let's, about let's this. Let's hear them. Oh, just I'm annoying. I say like too much. Um, I sound really like a privileged white girl. Uh, somebody in my family is going to have a meltdown about something I've said about them. And that's going to be a disaster. Um, who is this girl and why are we listening to her talk? She's not even important. I've never heard of her. <laughs> Does she even have a, like, who is this? Uh, I'm turning this off. Like, uh, I'm going to hear it back and be like, can you delete this? This is horrible. Like, I've already planned <laughs> what our conversations are going to be like and how I'm going to get you to take this off. I'm going to pass you out. You <laughs> are fantastic. You are fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but you I could are... continue if you'd like. Yeah. No. Oh, oh well, but no, I'm just I'm yeah. kidding. Thank you for um, that, that honesty. I find that so refreshing. That, that, that is the only kind of conversation I, that would ever make it comfortable for me to hang out at parties. If I could, knew that a conversation would be of that depth and that honesty like you just – shared i would leave my recliner much more often <laughs> well thank you i appreciate that thank you that means a lot um i mean if somebody wants to leave their recliner for for that reason i'm i'm impressed um but you're doing great thank you i'm i'm still so nervous I'm even talking in a voice that is like my nice girl voice. It's so funny. I asked you why, and I beat myself up constantly. I constantly judge myself when I'm doing the podcast. Every time I share something about myself, I immediately go, oh, you fucking narcissist. Stop making it all about you. But it's your podcast. You're supposed to. (laughs) Like, it's your podcast. (laughs) But I'm I'm interviewing you and talking to you about your life story. And I'm not saying that that voice in my head is right. I'm just saying that it just... Yeah. You ask people why they're having these thoughts, and you're like, I know why you're having this thought, because I'm having it too. Yes. I'm having it too. And this is what, you know, I've been doing the podcast for five years, and and it's still there. So um, I... I get it. And as soon as I leave doing somebody else's podcast, the whole ride home is, oh, I'm such a douche. Oh, I'm going to be I'm like editing everything I did as the whole drive I have, you know, back to the yeah. West Side. Yeah. And I'm even like aware that I'm using a voice that's like my sweet, like, oh, I'm just meeting somebody for the first time voice. And it doesn't even feel like who I really am. Like, it's just so weird. I, this is so, ugh. All my anxiety is happening at the same time. What's it, what does the other voice sound like? <laughs> just like, you know, Fuck when you're, you. what if I just like started talking like, like an old black man, like a Morgan Freeman <laughs> just dropped into like bass. Um, okay. My eating disorder. Let's go back to that. Fun so topic. you're gaining weight. In, okay. So gaining weight. Then I cut to college. Cut to, back, cut to weight loss camp. Yes. Um, I asked and my parents were like, yeah, but you can't gain the weight back. What? Okay. Yeah, which I get because it's really expensive. And they were like, you know, you've tried dieting before, but like you can't gain the weight back. We'll we'll pay for it, but you know. And, but you can understand. Like, see, it's for me, I have to. Out of ignorance, I can understand. But if any, if, if they knew anything about addiction, but they they would know. Most people don't see people who are overweight as having. They see them as lazy and undisciplined. Right. And they don't see it as a sickness or, yeah. you know, so not everybody who is overweight has a sickness, but a lot of people it's, it's, they could have an eating disorder. They could have a serious mental problem. That's, you know, more than just, I don't like to walk or I don't want to walk. 
<laughs> I don't want to, you know, worry about my health. Um, but anyway, so I went to weight loss camp and I didn't really lose a lot of weight there. Um, but after that, I, their flaw, their food philosophy was totally fucked up. It was How? not, it was a no fat diet. No, none at all, which is totally, which is completely unhealthy. And you need fat. Yeah. But I became, to- speaking of fears, extremely afraid of fats, like a, like a, bodily anxiety fear of fats if i saw butter i was terrified like i i had a meltdown over a baked potato once because it had butter on it and i had a full force meltdown over it (laughs) like like it was a bomb in front of me um so yeah i developed a crazy anxiety about fats i thought they were like the devil and i went and that was like the start so there was a few months after weight loss camp that i um was pretty like like a healthy person i was like i had a healthy just really conscious of my of eat of my weight and my or my, of exercising and of my meal plan and i was i felt like really good i had broken up with that guy and i was like dating for the first time and i was like having this really fun life and everything was going so well and it was like oh my god this is who i've always wanted to be you know, I'm social now, like school was easier. I was making new friends. I felt so confident and I felt really good about my, about, I didn't feel good about my body yet, but I felt good about the progress I was making. And it was just like, just a small window. And then it just got more and more restrictive. Then it was like, I'm a vegetarian now. I'm a vegan now. Now I don't eat X, Y, Z. And it got more and more restrictive, um, because I had such a huge fear of ever gaining the weight back and going back to that other life. Like I had known what it was like to be a fat person and it's ho- it's so shitty. Like we're so, so so mean to fat people. And so I just had this huge fear that if I let myself cheat one day or I give an inch, I would just fall right back into it and gain all the weight back and go back to being that like really miserable, self-hating person. So it got for over a year and a half, I lost like 70 pounds. And then I was, uh, and then I, and then it was just like all I did. That's all I thought about. I went to the gym for like three hours a day and just barely ate and was just, it was my whole life. And, and I don't know how I survived. I like, I, I honestly don't know how I did anything else. I don't know how I got through school or did anything. So what would your mood be like when you felt like your restricting was paying off? It's, uh, it was like, would would you be high from, from it? Would you, why, you know, why keep, you know, it's like, I feel like I look back on it and I'm like, I didn't feel that, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel that good. I never really like loved my body. And, and I mean, I, I don't, even at my lowest weight, I never felt good enough. I've never, you know, was never like, this is it. I'm satisfied. It could always be better. And so it wasn't, I'm like, is it worth it? No. <laughs> I wonder if in a way it, it served a purpose of distracting you from any pain that you had buried as a, oh, as a yeah. kid or, or as a adolescent. Yeah. But I, and I think my eating disorder was just one of the ways I escaped. It's also a yeah. control thing. Yeah. Like control is a big 
theme in that and eating disorders and there's a lot of perfectionistic tendencies that go along with it but i think i've never met a person with an eating disorder that wasn't a perfectionist yeah never which is and i always did i never thought i was perfectionist because i didn't think i was i thought perfectionists actually seemed like they were high achievers and there's such a difference between the two perfectionists often don't achieve a lot because they it's it's like either they get paralyzed by yes yeah it's like we we end up not doing it at all and then you're then you look like you give a shit as much as somebody who doesn't give a shit at all you know it sucks um you don't have to do anything to be a perfectionist yeah yeah and that's why i was like you just not a perfectionist unless you count judging and then in which case you're yeah yeah constantly busy it sucks it's such it's such a i'm either gonna lose 50 pounds or i'm gonna eat whatever the fuck i want like it's it's you know it's such a fuck it mentality of like i've already eaten this much today i'm just gonna binge more Mm because fuck it who cares or you know but yeah i i think my eating disorder was just one of the many ways i was i was escape i would use it through sex through traveling like i spent i did this international program for college and so i was able to go abroad a lot which was really cool it was a really that was a healthier escape because it was a cool, productive thing. And what do you mean when you said you did it through sex? Um, I totally used having sex with people as a way to get that validation and oh. that high of like, I see. I I'm thought, enough and I am and somebody approves of me. I thought you were still talking about your eating disorder and I didn't understand. But I don't think that they're necessarily... Um, I think they're extremely similar because they're both process addictions. And, you, yeah. and for many people, you... There are some people who are asexual, don't have a yeah. sexual needs, but I think for a lot of us, it's like eating. We, yeah. we need to to have sex, and yeah. um, you know, I've struggled with pornography. And the other night, I found myself watching an R-rated movie specifically for a scene in it that I had remembered as a kid, where there was nudity, and I just felt really um, bad about myself not because it was an immoral thing to do but because i was using that to distract myself from something that i obviously didn't want to look at yeah and you know the good news was is that i looked inside at what it was that i didn't want to look at and so i had some conversations with people that i had been afraid to have and um and it and it helped that's good but but that that those are now the markers for me of You know, in many ways, understanding what your triggers and your addictions are can be, if you can find a way to manage them, they can be a blessing to you because they can let you know when you're feeling uncomfortable and you're burying things. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And so much, but that requires like a level of trusting your own, your own feelings and your own instincts, like, you know, your intuition. Mm -hmm. And when people try to like convince you that you're. This is a question I have for you, actually, of like, because you deal with so much of, you know, so many different, talk to so many different people about different mental illnesses and different, you know, I'm always like really con- confused by the idea that you're supposed to, all you really have are your intuitions and your instincts and your feelings. A lot of times it's like, we don't have, no one really has the answer for a lot everyone has different opinions mm-hmm. and ideas, but you have your feelings and you have your, you know, what your gut tells you. And so much of like your mental of mental illness is that your feelings are flawed, that your thoughts are weird, mm-hmm. that you're it's a mental you have a mental illness, so you can't really trust how you're feeling. You know, you're bipolar, so X Y Z. You're depressed, so X Y Z. 
and it's so confusing because you're like, when, I need to, part of my depression is that I don't listen to myself, is that I feel like I can't be heard and that people are telling me that I don't, that I shouldn't have a voice or that, that I'm, um, I'm trying to find a way to articulate this in a better way than I'm doing right now. Are, are it you, just gets confusing. Like what? When do you pay attention to your we, feelings yeah, and when do when? you say that this, this isn't a feeling that I, I really, uh, this is just, uh, my mental illness creating this feeling in me. Yeah, I almost feel like it's what other people do to you. Unless so, because you can tell within yourself what's coming from where a lot of times after some work. I mean, you know, in the beginning you can't, but. The the struggle for me is to, is to um, say this feeling that I'm having right now, is this related to something deeper underneath me that I don't want to look at? Or is this just a feeling that is a byproduct of my depression or my anxiety and I just need to distance myself from it and observe it and it will pass. Yeah. Though so that's kind of the two big ways that I examine my feelings. Is is this something I, I need to examine deeper or is this something I just need to take a deep breath and let it yeah. let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's just something I thought about recently a lot. I was like, you know, I think a lot of I thought I think a lot of with eating disorders is that it becomes so much your identity and uh, it's such a it's an attention seeking thing. You want people to be concerned about you. You want people to look at you and be like, "Honey, are you okay? What's going on?" because you don't feel like you have a voice uh often. Like what I what I heard a lot of girls talk about in in treatment. It was mostly girls cuz residential was all female. Mm-hmm. In the step down program there were men mm-hmm. too. Um but, you know, a lot of girls would talk about just feeling like they were never heard. And so this was a way to just be like, I'm fucked up. I have problems. Mm-hmm. Will you listen to me now? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like now you kind of have to now when it's gotten this bad. And, you know, I'm trying to now just find ways to be able to like voice how I feel and feel heard without having to use bad behaviors. But sometimes it's like why people scream. You know, they don't feel heard when they're talking in a in a normal voice. So they start yelling. So you'll pay attention, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like people are busy and distracted and life is crazy and messy and people have their careers. And sometimes you have to scream to get people's attention. And it's never it's always just hurting yourself. You know, it's always at your own expense. So you you got out of the um, the camp. OK, so, yeah, I got out of the camp. I know that was like a fat, huge fear tangent. of fat then. <laughs> uh, sorry? And then you had a huge fear of fat. I was a huge fear of fat. And, and, then, and, um, and then you went, uh, kind of got into anorexic. So yeah, more restrictive. Restricting. Yeah. And then, fi- and then it would be considered, you know, by the textbook, anorexia. Um, and then I went, uh, I just, like, there was a period, oh, I remember so this is probably this was probably one of the most like uh, one of those memorable moments um we were on family vacation and i was one at my lowest weight and it was like i hadn't seen my parents because you know i was away at school and i hadn't seen my parents in a while and my mom was really concerned and um i had just started to go see a therapist in new york about food and feeling like maybe I needed some help and I was 
I'm sure you know this, like being outed, if you have an eating disorder and somebody outs you and somebody or like admit or saying it out loud or having people know is the, the most terrifying thing. Like it like lives off of a secret. It lives off of being such a private thing, you know, as an addiction as well. Like it's, it's your secret and it, it only survives if it stays a secret. And so to be outed is like, it's killing a part of it. And it's, the most terrifying thing in the world and my mom totally you know just set like she she did this thing i went we were you know sitting at the dinner table and i was like pushing around my food and i went to the bathroom i got up to go to the bathroom and my dad was like oh where's chelsea going and my mom did this like um she like motioned i was like gonna throw up you know Mm -hmm. and made this really loud gagging noise like she was you know and it it i I can't explain it well but like there was a my whole family, our family friends, random strange, like we were all sitting at this big table. What? And when she did that, it was the most humiliating, one of the most humiliating moments of my life because it was like, you're my mom, you know, like have my back. If you're concerned about me, come talk to me. Yeah. But that was so embarrassing. Ugh, getting emotional. But like, yeah, it was. <laughs> Sorry. It's it's hard. Like I don't talk about it often because it's just that it was it was it was just like I just I was like I'll never be good enough. I'm I'm, I'm not good enough at being overweight, and I wasn't good enough at being fit enough. And so it just was like no matter what, and then to publicly humiliate me like that in front of people I didn't know that well. And my own family and just making that it was just disgusting noise it was so violating and so embarrassing and i was still so like no one can know about my eating disorder like still in that mode of it of that like part of the addiction so it was hard it was definitely really tough that's hard to hear that is hard to hear i mean that that breaks my heart <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why people, um, again, I just, I think for her, it was just her fear. I think she was just really afraid. I think you're absolutely right. And so people act out in different ways when they're afraid, but you know, I just wish there was like a way I could explain it so that if you don't have any, um, relationship to the kind of thing, you can understand the level of like humiliation that that is i don't think you have to explain that yeah i don't know I mean, if that it's clear to be. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's so embarrassing it's, and scary because it's like my eating disorder was my best friend at that point then it felt like it was being so exposed and um yeah it was terrifying and i was so uncomfortable in my own body too and she kept you know just it just that whole vacation was really hard and after that um i came back and uh to school and i just something snapped i started binging like crazy and i was like restricting all day binging all night restricting all day binging all night and it just was it went from like a really restrictive period to i was gaining a lot of weight really quickly because you know like in starvation mode anything you eat just sticks so i was um the binges were really crazy and i i was probably the sick that was the sickest i've ever been because it was not i didn't feel that it wasn't i mean my weight was get was becoming normal again 
but I was like, I was such a mess because I was caught between like my the self of like binging and that crazy chaos of of binges Mm -hmm. and that horrible physical pain, and then like that control of restricting. What does it feel like um, emotionally from the moment you decide I'm going to binge right now? Buying the food, opening it up, eating it, and then you're done. If, walk me walk me through what you're thinking and feeling. I think so much of it is that you're not thinking and feeling. It's it's like you get to not think and feel for for a bit. It's it's you, like almost autopilot. Do you have you ever found yourself because I know people with process addictions have experienced this and I've experienced this before too, where it's almost like another person is driving me. Um, and I'm almost like I'm watching myself knowing I, I shouldn't be, you know, doing this, but it's, it's almost like there's like two people and, and one is just doesn't care. And the other part of me is like, I can't believe we're doing this. Yeah. I think it, I think those two elements are there. I think a binge, uh, often for me, what's, what was helpful is, um, yeah, we've uh, in treatment. There was a lot of like describing your eating disorder habits, and you see how they play out in your relationships. So you can kind of see a lot of where these things are coming from um, on a deeper level. And my binges are like often a little bit of everything. So it's not binging wholly on one thing. Like I won't eat. Um, it's like two bites of a thousand things. You know. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's it's really weird. It's like I imagine every person's different. Yeah, I mean, I I can also binge like you know binging on on one food, but but if I'm in like a one of those like late night manic binges, it's it's like a compulsion. It's um like I'll sit in my room and try and just try to distract myself, try to distract myself, try to go to sleep, try to just go on the internet, write something. Like I'll do everything I possibly can, and it's like an itch you know it just won't stop and it's like it's such a compulsive compulsive thing and uh it's finally like fuck it i just can't do this anymore and then it almost just feels like something is taking over it's it makes me sad i feel like when i say that it sounds like i'm like being possessed or something but it addiction it, is a possession it sucks yeah. it's so like it feels like a monster that's like a hungry monster in you and and it wakes up and it doesn't shut up until it until it gets fed and then it goes back to sleep. It, but it's like it truly feels like an inner monster. And um, so then it's like I go to the cabinet and it's just I think in the in the throughout the binge until the end of it, there's not much thought. It's really autopilot. So it's kind. It's kind of a uh, an oblivion. Yeah, it's kind. It's just very manic. It's it's not enough time to think about anything. It's too like grab this, grab that, like a little bit of this, two bites of that. And it, so when I was first binging, and was, are you eating kind of really fast while yeah, you're doing that? Okay, yeah. as fast as you can, or so you're not really savoring anything. No, it's just no. okay. It's not like enjoyable. Pro- this is not. It's almost like you don't even have time to taste anything, you know, because you're just tasting something new. But it's like um, when I was first binging, I was so concerned with gaining weight that I was binging on low calorie and no calorie food. I was I was binging on like sugar free jelly, 
that has like 10 calories, you know, just like fisting that, which was really wow. gross. It's really gross. Yeah, it's pretty nasty. I mean, that's what that should tell you that that's not the same thing as, you know, a disordered eat. It's that's an eating disorder. Yeah. When you're fisting sugar free jam out of the can out of the bottle, not even a spoon, just not right even in your a hand. spoon, like really gross. Um, And, you know, I would like eat a head of broccoli like a cheeseburger. You know, that's what I was. I was binging on vegetables because it would fill me up and it, I could eat a lot of it and it wasn't high calorie. And, you know, now they're now they're not that way. Now it's like anything I can get my hands on. But it's very it's just a little bit of everything. And I think that's a weird thing. A lot of, you know, that says that's a very specific kind of binge. And so that was helpful to talk about with therapists and stuff of I don't know. I'm sorry. I just kicked you. Um, I think. Different therapists have different ways about going about this stuff. Some people think it's not helpful really to examine your habits and whatever. It's more just stop doing the habits and replace them with something else and Mm -hmm. not fixating so much on why and what's going on and analyzing. Um, But I think it's interesting. And I think one of the most uh, interesting... Oh, so so then the the binging binges were happening, restricting, binging, restricting, binging. And I graduated from college. And I came back and I think not having that, it was a classic like graduated from college and like lost my goddamn mind type of thing of like felt really lost. I didn't know who I was. <laughs> yes. I was just I'm doomed. Like, I'm fucked. What? I what majored the fuck in the now? wrong thing. I majored in sociology. Okay. Like yeah. what? I didn't know. Going for the big sociology do- do- dollar. Oh huh? I was yeah. just like, what am I doing? Uh, yeah. Sociology and psychology, which, which is interesting, but I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I just felt so... I didn't know. And I was like waitressing and I was just living back with my parents. And it was just like my life had taken such a 180 from what it was. And I just, and I had not practiced in like, I wasn't practicing being myself and like knowing who I was and being confident about who I was and making choices and then not, you know, and then being like trusted for my choices. It was a lot of just like, you're brilliant, but also an idiot, you know, like that's what you would say to yourself or your parents would say to you. Just like, I think, you know, my family is just like an empire of mixed messages. They're the most supportive and also the most destructive people. <laughs> it's really, it's so confusing. And the on one hand, they will be not everybody, but I'm making, I'm trying not to single anybody out because yeah. I don't want my, I don't want war, but I feel like, you know, it's, my dad is super supportive. He's, he's, I'm so close with him and he's super supportive. It's just the rest of my family, it can be, um, it's like, it's like nobody ever wants you to be that confident. Confident enough. Like they'll, they'll, the first to publicly congratulate you, but in private, cut you down and make your accomplishments seem like nothing. And it's just, it's shitty because it's, it's like, well, what, which one am I then? Am I brilliant or am I an idiot? Am I hilarious or am I obnoxious? Am I, you know, it's just, so I don't know. I think a lot of my eating disorder was like, well, I know this. I know this. I know what this is. I know, what, I know what to do with this. I And I know what the reaction I'm going to get is too. Um, so yeah, when I graduated, I came back and it was just like, I entered into like a horrible, just a horrible depression and I think um, a year prior, they had my parents had tried to get me to go to to a rehab for eating disorder, and I said no when I refused to go. And at this point, 
I was like, okay, I think I need to go to treatment. So this was just like two years ago, three years ago? This was 2013, yeah, three years ago, August 6th. It'll be three years. And and how was the treatment? It was okay. It was it was um it was totally eating disordered mentality. I thought I was gonna lose weight. I went I went <laughs> to treatment. So... <laughs> I went to treatment to lose weight. I I swear to God. That makes sense though. I bet a lot of people. Yeah. I was like, I just want to get rid of the binging. I don't want to get rid of the restricting. I thought but, I was, you, but you didn't say that out loud. Did no, you? I was like, I want to get better. I care. I I want to just be healthy. I want my life back. But I did not care at all. I was like, I just don't. I just don't want to binge anymore. You know, I think you can boil down all of the failed or um, unsuccessful rehab experiences can almost all be boiled down to that person refusing to let go of their idea that I can do it my way. Yeah. I can do it my way. And not surrendering to the suggestions at that, if it's a good rehab. Yeah, and it was. It is, it's one of the most respected treatment facilities. And I just didn't feel... I didn't... Well, I think a lot of it's also like, I just didn't feel connected to my therapist there. Um, we just didn't click very well. So it just, you know, it was really interesting. Rehab itself was fascinating to me because I didn't even realize a lot of what I was doing was eating disorder behaviors until I went there. I didn't, I'd For never, instance. I mean, I didn't know about food rituals. I never even heard of food rituals before I went. And I, then I was like sitting at the dinner table and seeing, you know, people cutting up their foods into microscopic pieces and, um, or people, you know, uh, one girl couldn't have, and this is why it's so, it's so, it's about the food and it's not about the food. That's one of like the key phrases from treatments. Like it's about the food, not about the food because, you know, so much of your eating disorder just says a lot about where the underlying, what the underlying process is. So, um, you know, there's one girl who all of her food, none of her food could touch all the ingredients had to be separated and she would Purell constantly and she would shower constantly and she was totally afraid of germs and she was like, you know, kind of OCD about, uh, about cleanliness. Mm. Um, and, and food was one of them. They, food made her feel dirty. And, uh, you know, and for, and when come to find, like there was a really traumatic past and, and so it just comes out in different ways. Mm. And that's why I don't think that, any of these things are that different. I don't think I'm that different from somebody who struggles with alcohol or sex addiction or work, you know, because it, you can just turn, I turn my eating disorder into a shitty relationship. You know, you can, you can make those underlying self-esteem. Like for me, it was self-esteem problems and it was, um, a, a self-worth, a self, like a self-hatred problem. What, what, uh, were or are your food rituals? Um, I don't know that I had really a lot of food rituals, okay. um, but I, I just, it was something I didn't know about. Uh, I didn't realize, I didn't know about water loading, which is like, which is something I used to do and didn't realize that it was uh, eating disorder behavior, which is just like, try to fill up, so fill you up be hungry. so much on water. But I thought I was just like drinking water normally mm-hmm. and it was a cra- they regulated how much water we could have. And I had no idea that it was like that what I was doing was like crazy amounts. I used mm-hmm. to drink like giant jugs of water one after the other constant to just not feel hunger. Um, and, 
Man, um, I'm just trying to think of, and you know, and just keep, there's this, the self-talk element. We all basically talked to ourselves the exact same way. It's nuts. We're so mean to ourselves. And I would never talk to another person the way I talk about the way I talk to myself. And I'm also the first person to be like, don't you fucking talk to me like that to somebody else. Yeah. And then I'm like, but I'm way worse to myself than they will ever be. If if somebody talked to us the way we talk to ourselves, we would get a restraining order on them. Yeah, or or, or, or date them. Or date them. I was just going to say. Yeah, that's exactly what I left treatment and then got into a terrible, a horrible relationship. And that relationship was more transformative for me in terms of getting better and uh, changing how I was. I mean, that changed my. That bad relationship changed my life. How so? Um, which is funny because it wasn't even a real relationship, which is probably why. Um, I had never, so I left, I left rehab and immediately went to Uganda, which was <laughs> great. It was like against everybody's advice. Like, why would you go to a place where food is scarce? Uh, I went to Uganda. And was that part of, oh, excuse me while I grab a water. Are you good with water? I'm Do good. You? Thank you. No, I'm okay. Thanks. Was that part of your, uh, plan was to go to a place where food was scarce so that. No, I think I just needed to get out. I was so tired of talking about myself and talking i mean i know you can't believe that now um but no i was just so tired of like therapy and talking about myself and talking about my problems and you were also living with your parents right not during rehab i mean i was living there and then the step down programs i was staying in the apartments i see um and but yeah just i needed i was like i gotta get out of la and do something totally different and just I need a break from all of this. And so I got offered to do this documentary promo shoot thing uh, for a nonprofit there. And it was just, it just was like, oh, this is so different than what I've been doing. This is all about other people. This is, you know, it just, it just was like, oh, that sounds amazing. Um, and it was, it was awesome. But I went immediately back into starvation mode. Immediately. Like, well, it sounds like you, you- maybe didn't have the tools to it's also just like the irony of going to a place where people are starving not by choice and i'm still by choice starving it just says a lot about like that whole you better finish everything on your plate because kids are starving in africa like that doesn't work i had an eating disorder still in that environment it's a very powerful thing like and i fully was like i can't believe i am doing i'm filming children who are starving you know because they can't afford food and i am doing this by choice like it just i couldn't and then and that made it 10 it was just like a horrible Your shame must yeah, have yeah, yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah skyrocketed yeah and then my shame for being like that's so self-absorbed i shouldn't be even <laughs> like it's like just it was so layered of like oh my god why are you so self-absorbed? Like that whole thing. Like you're gonna, you're still start. You're still restricting here. Um, it's like you're negative. And you're focusing on that, and that's obnoxious and gross. Like you're, you know, it just, it just, it was like, it was layers on layers and layers of self-judgment. It's, it's like your negative voice went to graduate school Ugh, during then. But it was, it was fine. I mean, I think I, because when you're in the restrictive mode, everything's great. 
you're fine. Everything's fine. Like it's, it's, I felt great to be honest. I felt really, really good. Um, and, but that doesn't, you know, not any better. That's it's an also, illusion, right? Yeah, totally yeah. An illusion. Because uh, the flip side will come back. Um, any any positive memories from your? Uh, oh yeah, Uganda was amazing. Uh, I the kids that I were was filming, they were amazing. I mean, the two year olds were like building houses. There are two year olds with like hammers and nails, like building houses, and they're like infants, you know. And they and it's the people were just so warm and friendly um yeah so inspiring the kids were so inspiring um i think uganda is also just a really beautiful place uh and it's a really calm place relatively to surrounding countries they're Mm -hmm. pretty politically stable when they're not hating on gay people um do you know about that Mm mm-hmm yeah, I was there. I was there when they signed that bill. The, there aren't many African countries that are pro equality in terms of yeah, it's, hor- it's that. that's horrible. And the people that I worked with, thankfully, were um, progressive and really open minded, mm-hmm. and so we had interesting talks about it. Um, but I mean, that was a wild thing to be there for that because I'm, you know, I was a white person. I stood out, and everyone wanted to talk to me about my president and how and how he pulled funding and you know we're trying to impose our sinful american beliefs on them and you know uh, and arguing with them about gay rights and just it was it was interesting and horrible mm-hmm. <laughs> because then you're re- representing america as a whole you know every every time they're talking to you about anything it's like you are yeah i've been ab- i've been abroad yeah before, yeah yeah no like- i yeah of course um, it's just such an uncomfortable position to be in. So anyway, uh, so you had some good moments, but, but the restricting was, uh, getting bad when you were there. Yeah. It just went right back to it. So, so, um, then, so then what happened? Uh, so then I came back and I immediately met somebody who I, I met him on Tinder which was like the first in a series of unfortunate decisions. I <laughs> fell, <laughs> fell. This was like where Tinder was first starting to be. What uh, isn't Tinder mostly uh, hookup? Now it's now people are it's anything. Now it's like you know dating or. At the time, Tinder was like relatively new, but I don't know. I, I met this guy, and I was like. I was obsessed with him. It was completely a form of my eating disorder. Um, it was an, it was just he was purely an escape. I I do think I was I don't know if I was in love with him or I was in, I was so infatuated with him, and but it was so bad. He was like he was such a shithead, you know. And um, I'm I'm going to just take a wild guess that you created an unrealistic fantasy of who he would be. Oh, my god yeah i was like i wrote this care this character in my head of who he was and it's totally i mean i don't he's fine he's just some guy you know like really that's it he's just some dude he's not a horrible person or whatever he's just like some guy but i made him into like because then he could rescue you from your feelings perfect yeah he's perfect and he's the one and i knew him for like five minutes and i decided he was the one um 
and I turned into like I think I think this is why it was so much more um eye opening for me than all of the other stuff treatment than all of the big things we think are gonna like be these pivotal mm-hmm. life changing experiences going to third like all these big gestures because everything was so internal. Everything was so like I turned all of my shit turned was like on myself, mm-hmm. and this was another person, and it was like I was able to see what my bad, what my self hatred was doing in relation to other people, and so it was like it it woke me up more because somebody else was able to be like dude you're the, you're acting this way like he said that to you no he was whore i mean but it was just other people saw i see what was going on between me and this person because you couldn't really keep a relationship as secret as you could your food exactly exactly everything was so private with me and um i i couldn't stop talking about him i couldn't stop i was like always on his social media i was just he was my everything. I was like, I totally obsessed with him. And he was not feeling that back. Like mm. he, I was a very casual person for are, him. Are you normally kind of obsessive when you're in a relationship with somebody? Cause that's the second relationship that, you know, you, you talked about the, the first boyfriend that you were kind of obsessed with him. I was, obs- I wasn't like this though. Okay. I was obs- like, I was like t- very typical 16 year old girl. Okay. Like, I love my boyfriend, you know? Okay. It wasn't, like, scary. <laughs> this was scary. <laughs> this was scary. Um, for sure. Uh, Scaring yourself or him scared of you? He didn't know. Okay, so we started dating, and I was, in the beginning, like, just trying to play it cool and... Uh, failing. <sighs> failing miserably. Um, and he had been really misleading about stuff. Like, he did, told me his girlfriend of five years... Uh, that they broke up a year prior when really it was like a couple weeks before we met. And, you know, he, he was misleading about what he was looking for. I think I, he knew I was like so obsessed with him and I was helping him deal with this breakup. You know, I was like a, a nice young girl that, cause I was like 22 when I met him, which was only a couple years ago. Oh my God. That's frightening that it was so recent. Um, <laughs> but how old was he? He was like late late twenties, okay, twenty eight, twenty nine, um, and I I was just yeah I was completely obsessed with him, and um, he didn't want to commit to me, and I freaked out like absolutely lost my mind. We he broke up with me in quotes like you know stopped wanting to see me because I was too clingy no just just i kept being like i want more and he would Mm. be like i don't so you know um and i i like just lost it i had to take like a couple days off of work i was just like devastated it was the it was a heartbreak Mm. and uh yeah i spent the next two months like being anywhere i thought he might be and yeah and just like you know, going to his local grocery store all the time and going to, you know, coffee shops that I knew he might be at. Just like really classic stereo, like that annoying, horrible stereotype that I 
can't stand um but that i lived mm-hmm. of just crazy girl and you couldn't stop yourself no i knew it and i i was you were so aware miserable. that you were engaging in sick behavior right yeah i think i of course yeah um because some people don't some people think he just you know he or she just needs to understand you know there's this other thing i need to tell them and then they oh, will change def- their mind no, 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 that's definitely where i was okay. for a while where it was like I mean, I've always had a sense of humor about like my about this stuff. Like even through treatment, I was always getting in trouble because I was always making jokes out of everything. But um, so I would like, but I th- I was so I was so in deep with this thing. It had nothing to do with him. Like it was just a reflection on how I felt about myself. You know, I felt so bad about myself, and here was this person who I said decided that if he approved of me, that if he wanted to be with me, I was good enough. And he was like, you're not good enough. That's what I was getting. And it was How did you come to that realization that that's that he just represented your own desire to love yourself? Enough time and moving on and okay, perspective that's pretty, on it. That's a, that's a pretty profound realization for somebody, especially at your age. I mean, I'm just like really wise and like really deep and, you know, like better than you. So like, yeah, I mean, uh-huh. for sure. Um, definitely. Uh, no, I just, I just, I think enough time goes by and you're like, you get perspective on it. And also like, uh, and and then we, and then we started dating again. Uh, and I, then it was 10 times worse because he was just like, he was, he's a cl- classic narcissist. I mean, like he is textbook narcissist. So those two together of like somebody who just is dying for approval and dying, literally dying for approval and, and, mm. and acceptance from other people. And mm. I decided if, and he was the one he was his approval. I was suddenly going to be, you would feel mommy's love. <laughs> <laughs> he was my mom. Basically I was dating. That's my, what I, that's no. what I thought when you talked about him being a narcissist. He and, was, he was, you know, a, a total narcissist. And I, I just, I don't know for whatever reason I think it, I think a, a concoction of I just got out of rehab I was really vulnerable mm-hmm. and um uh, that age and also like he was doing so many cool things to me like or like at the time he was so cool and out of reach like I was not a part of this like LA community really I had just moved back and he was like doing all these cool things and I was like he has this life I want and he's like hot and like blah 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 i just decided like this guy was um everything he represents my Mm self-worth and i just yeah it made me nuts but yeah so so when in that interim of when we were not seeing each other anymore i was definitely full-on crazy of like he's um facebook stalking oh my god and (laughs) So to the point where like I would look at his recently added friends and any girl I would like try to meet her like I would try to find out where she hung out to to, what yeah it's like really embarrassing but yeah I was nuts and I imagine then you would click on her and look through all of her photos and see and what like where she went to school where she was from I know so much about so many people who have no idea who i am you should be a detective it that's all you got to do to get a great detective is just have their love spurned it's really gross how many people like because you know there were like characters of his life that i 
I was like, oh, I'm now emotionally invested in people's lives who have absolutely no idea who I am. <laughs> and I don't want them to know how I know who they are. But yeah, I, I was, but I, I would be like, if I just see him and I look this way and I say this thing and I'm really funny and I say I'm working on this really important thing and I'm doing this comedy, whatever the fuck, whatever it is, then maybe he'll be like, oh, I miss her and I want her back. And that's never, we would run into each other like, oh my God, I can't believe I saw you here. And he yeah. would just be like, hey, nice to see you. Bye. Yeah. And ignoring you, ignoring the fact that you have waves of desperation coming <laughs> off of you like a pizza just taken out of the <laughs> so oven. Gross. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, then I started seeing him again and I would just do like he would drive my he would like use my car and he would like totally take advantage of so many things from me. And like he would, you know, he was such he was just like such a narcissist and just really every he was he's an only child, too. And like. Mm. I don't know. I have beliefs about only children. Um, but so, he, so, so then what happened? So he uh, started dating again. And then um, it was one of those things where it was like off and on, off and on, off and on. Because I would always get like, I, I need more. I want more. I want to be with you. And he would be like, oh, I don't want a girlfriend. Um, and then, and then finally we got into, it, it became so so bad like we it became so unhealthy and um he got progressively like he did a couple of really horrible things and i was able to be like oh i'm trying to find a way to talk about talk around this um yeah he just he just did some really really shitty things and basically i was like I can't, I have to look, I have to get, go to therapy. Um, and so I went to therapy and I talked about it and I don't, I just, I think enough time, I think it's just time. Like you spend enough time away from somebody and, and everything, you're bound to have more perspective on it. Absolutely. You can't live in total like hysteria for that long. I mean, that's just the nature of life is you're mm -hmm. always changing somehow. So like, I just... I don't know, I got enough perspective on it where I was able to look at it and be like, it had so little to do with him and ev and pretty much everything to do with how I felt about myself. He was just like the perfect tool Vehicle. to hate myself. Yeah. And, and that's why I feel like it was more enlightening than all of the therapy I had. So... Because it was outside of me. So... When did your right now? You said that your your uh, eating disorder is almost as bad as it's ever been. What does it look like today? Um, I go in like waves of uh, excessive like binging periods and then restricting periods still. So it's pretty much where it. I I don't feel like it's the same where it used to be because my mentality about it, like my my behaviors, are pretty similar to what they were before I went to treatment, but my, my feelings and my thoughts about them feel way healthier, which is weird. I don't know what to do with that, you know? So kind of like you, you haven't necessarily made as much outward progress, but there's more inner knowledge about the way your yeah. thoughts and feelings operate and yeah. how they're related to your... It's not running my life, mm -hmm. but it's... The, but it it looks similar. Like, are you so, get, are you attending any kind of support groups for it? No, I'm in th I'm in therapy still, and it's I talk about it with her. 
Um, but yeah, right now it's been like I've gained a lot of weight in a short amount of time. And so, and I'm in like a bingey stage. And then what seems to be the pattern is like for six, seven months, I'll be in like a bingey, excessive weight gain, you know, not taking care of, not exercising, not taking care of myself, just having like no interest in like eating whatever I want, whenever I want. Mm -hmm. And then I will like, it's almost like I wake up one morning and it's a, the light switches and I am in like a, an excessive exercise, barely eating anything mode. And I lose a ton of weight really quickly. And it's like, and is that a solution to you? Because to me, it just sounds like, um, you know, as we say in recovery, switching deck chairs on the Titanic. What do you mean by is it a solution? S- swinging from binging to restricting. Because it almost sounded as if you were saying then switching to restricting, you know, almost like, oh, okay, the problem has settled down. When in reality, you're just switching to a different problem. Yeah, I mean, it's they're equally bad. And right. it's, it's also like if I have negative relationships in my life, it's I treat that just as badly as uh, something weird I'm doing with my food. So, or if I have bad, you know, that's why, right? Like, I, you know, I don't know. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a solution, but it's like it's so tempting to do that when you felt for so long so out of control, ga- weight, you know, gaining all this weight. And, um, you know, I've put on a lot of weight really fast, so it's uncomfortable. And... I know that restricting for a long period of time is terrible for me, that it will lead to another cycle of binging, that it will just keep the the process going. But it's so sexy to me, that idea of like, I could just lose all this weight really fast and I can be done with it. And it's like such a shameful weight, you know, and has it's just it's such a weird weird place to be i don't i don't know anybody who's been able to get any kind of um if they have a straight up addiction i don't know anybody that has been able to manage it without being around either through support groups or some type of fellowship with other people yeah who share the same struggle and i'm just i I don't want to be a you know mr bossy or know-it-all but i i can't see how you could ever um make headway with this if you're not um interacting with other people that have the same um struggle it it, that's that's my experience of addiction um because underneath the addiction is emotional well-being and i i think it's just so hard to become emotionally stable in our own little bubble. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I think that you know I'm not opposed to it, and I think that like support groups are amazing. And I think I just and I hope that doesn't come across. No, as, no, as not preachy. at all. Not okay. a, not even a little bit. Um, okay. I appreciate it. I mean, I know that. Uh, I just feel like I've tried to, I've, I've, I thought, I think I thought if I just dive into work, if I just get really into working and comedy and, you know, I'll stop feeling the need to do this stuff. And it's like, that's no, not it's, what it is. It's just deck chairs, There's man. So You're ma- I just think, switching I'm, deck chairs. I think I'm running out of excuses. I yeah. think right now I'm in the phase of exhausting all my excuses. That's probably a good thing, though. Yeah. 
so I think I'm just getting to the end of, you know, seeing, oh, this didn't work. Oh, this is not going to work either. Oh, this isn't going to be the thing that fixes it. Um, and I think I just like, I'm in that stage of, I just need to go through those excuses so that like when I go back to a support group, I can buy into it. I think it's does that a, make sense, or that just sound like does that, or sense. does that just sound like another excuse? No, no, know. because we have to. We have to. The nature of the addict is they have to try every iteration of doing it their own way <laughs> yeah. before they finally surrender to the fact that they need to connect to other human beings and get vulnerable and and yeah and do that yeah to yield control. We're all about control. So and, true. And yielding it is terrifying. Saying, oh, okay, I'm going to take your suggestions on how to do this and that and this and that. And I'm going to call you when I feel like completely isolating. And I'm going to take your phone call, person who I'm not that crazy about in the meeting, but who wants to reach out. That's who the fuck, what addict's nature is to say, yes, I want that. But the longer we do it, I think the easier it becomes. And it becomes part of our routine. And before we know it, those obsessions are are no longer they're either either removed or they don't have the intensity that they they don't have the hold on us that they used to. That's been my experience with dealing with my many addictions. Yeah, and I think I I think it takes a certain amount of self love to do that. Yes. And it's one of those things where you like get you you learn to love yourself more by doing it, but to do it requires a certain amount of self-love because you're like I don't know why I want to call you and reach out or I don't want to know That's... I don't know why I want to take care of myself. Who and... am I taking care of? I don't care about this person. And and for most of us, we have to let other people, strangers, yeah. love us first unconditionally with nothing to gain. Because until Dozens of people did that for me. Only until that happened could I say, maybe they're not all wrong. Maybe I am lovable. Maybe I'm not a fucking piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And that was when it really started to change for me. That's awesome. So Chelsea, this was a great conversation. It, uh, I love talking to you. I love how uh, open and honest you were. You helped shed some light uh, on eating disorders for me. and uh, But more than anything, I loved uh, the fact that we've never met, how um, how much you trusted the process and how vulnerable you got. And uh, that means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And this was uh, this was pretty amazing. This was scary. This was really, really scary. Those are the best episodes. Um, but thank you for being really warm and, and easy to talk to and uh, soft. You have a softness to you that I feel like is why I could cry in front Aww. of you, you know? So thank you for that. Uh, this was this was really fun. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, it's at Chelsea Frank. It's at Chelsea. And, okay. <laughs> oh, it's Chelsea and Frank. Okay. Yeah, right. which is, you know, I'm going to hell for sure. Um, mm. It's Chelsea and then the A becomes the Anne Frank. It's too complicated. I should change it. S spell it. C-H-E-L-S-E-A-N-N-E-F-R-A-N-K. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, and on Instagram at Chelsea Frank. Okay. Thanks, Chelsea. Thank you so much.
Really, really enjoyed talking to uh, her, and um, I love having a guest on where I learn so many new things about uh, someone's struggle uh, that I'm sure is is not unique to uh, to her. So many thanks to Chelsea. I uh, got an update from her. She's doing great, and uh, her she says her uh, eating has never been cleaner and uh, and healthier. Not overeating, not undereating or restricting, and uh, she's been doing a lot of writing lately, um, getting writing jobs. So she sounds like she's in a in a really good place. Uh, this episode you're listening to will soon be transcribed and available on our website. Uh, many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and helping out the show. Uh, I want to also thank uh, Boardwalk T-shirts. They're the new t- uh, T-shirt vendor that I am using, and uh, I want to run an ad for them. Is your wardrobe in need of an update? Then you will want to check out Boardwalk. Boardwalk is an artist-owned and operated graphic apparel company offering a fun selection of clever original shirts for men, women, and kids. Not only are their shirts stylish, comfy, and available in an array of sizes, styles, and colors, but they'll get people saying, hey, cool shirt, maybe even high-fiving you for your excellent taste. Browse Boardwalk selection at iloveboardwalk.com right now and get 10% off your first order when you use coupon code MENTAL at checkout. You may have heard uh, earlier in the podcast I mentioned uh, people being monthly donors to this show. There are a variety of ways uh, that you can help the show. Uh, I I depend on you guys for donations. And uh, yes, we have advertisers here and there, but this show would not be able to sustain itself without uh, monthly donors. And you can do it one of two ways. You can do a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can become a monthly donor through Patreon uh, for as little as a dollar a month. And it means the world to me. And um, it's super simple to sign up. And when you become a monthly donor through Patreon, I can give you freebies like bonus content, you know, stuff from my personal life, little videos like I did a uh, a little video uh, tribute to Herbert after... uh, after he left this sweet planet. I miss him. Um, anyway, uh, other ways that you could support the show, uh, you could donate to the uh, GoFundMe uh, campaign that a kind listener has started to help fund uh, my next uh, trip to record international guests, uh, especially Ireland. Uh, I have a lot of people I want to record in Ireland. Um, you can support us financially by using our Amazon link. If you're going to buy something, uh, at Amazon, enter through our little Amazon logo on our homepage, and then they'll give us a small percentage of uh, of what you spend, and it doesn't make what you're buying any more expensive. That helps. You can help us non-financially by uh, going to iTunes, writing something nice about us. That boosts uh, our ranking, and that can bring more listeners to the show. Um all kinds of ways. You can check out the website of our, when we have a sponsor, visit that website. Even if you're not going to buy something, at least go check it out. Um, that helps. And another way is spreading the word. This is a big one, spreading the word about the podcast through social media. Um, word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth. Unless you don't like it and then keep it to yourself. Okay, this is a survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Dad is the Root of My Problems. And she's in her 20s and she writes, 
This past 4th of July weekend, my mom had tried to communicate to my dad that I felt like he was avoiding me and that I'd like him to talk to me more. Well, that went terribly and somehow ended up in a yelling match with my parents that took me right back to high school when they do this all the time. While my younger sister is older than she was then, so she came out of her room to get them to stop and as I learned, it did not stop it and their fight got worse. Since the fight was about me, I stayed in my room until my mom's voice got to the level where it sounded like it could turn into a fist fight. And when I came out, it was like a projection of my past. I honestly thought, wow, this is what I've been training for in therapy. And I laughed on the inside. Right before my dad walked out of the house, he says, this is all your fault. And I said, no, it's not. Don't blame me for your problems. And while he slammed the door and said, fuck you, uh, I thought about how wonderful it was that I finally stopped blaming myself for my parents' relationship problems. And I finally believed myself when I said, I'm not the cause of your problems. You're the cause of your problems. Even more irony in this situation, five years ago when I started going to therapy, I had asked my dad if he could go to therapy with me because I felt our communication and our relationship was a big problem for me. And there we were with communication being the problem. And I realized that I'd healed myself a lot and that I wasn't as big of a, quote, problem as I used to be. Love reading that. Thank you for sharing that. You know, one of the things I'm notice, uh, noticing, we've been doing the podcast now for over six years, the um, you guys are sharing more moments of, of recovery uh, in the surveys. And it's really cool to see how many people are getting help and growing and learning how to deal with, with toxic people and to stop um, beating themselves up as well, being mean to ourselves. This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Elevator Lady. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to read some parts of it. She is uh, she's bisexual in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she's been emotionally abused, uh, never been sexually abused. She writes, My mother was overbearing and invasive my entire life, but worsened as I got older. I was good in school and participated in lots of extracurricular activities, but was in, exhibiting signs of depression pretty young. When I was in third grade, I remember her shaking her head at me and saying, You turned into a bad person when you were seven. You were a good kid before that. Uh, I'm going to take a wild guess that that was probably the first time you uh, questioned her authority or stood up to something sick that she was doing. But anyway, continuing. Uh, my bedroom in my early teens did not have a door. She would go through my belongings, read my diary, found my online live journal account. It's so funny. I've never heard a live journal. And then twice uh, on this episode, we have live journal uh, mentions. Uh, read my online live journal account and confront me about what they contained. In my later teens, I moved into a bedroom right off the laundry room, so she was constantly in and out, and if I had the door closed, she would open it, even if she didn't need to do laundry. When I was in high school, she routinely accused me of being promiscuous and doing uh, drugs and drinking, none of which I was doing at the time. She accused me of worshiping Satan and enrolled me in a Christian high school when I suggested I wanted to dye my hair. She would insist I give her my work and school schedules weekly and would call me at my job to yell at me. 
Once she called me during a dinner rush at a fast food place I worked at to scream at me for having the lyrics to Nirvana's Dumb written on a piece of paper in my room. She smashed my CD collection because she thought one of the artists was satanic. We went to church but weren't particularly religious. When I moved out at 18, she would show up unannounced at the apartment I shared with my roommates and loudly berate me in the hallway about how I was literally killing her for not checking in every day. I could go on and on, but I think you get the you get the um uh fact, but uh, the 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 sense of it. Um and she uh, this woman cut contact with that mom about five years ago, thank God. Uh, any positive experiences with the abuser? My mom would take me to see musicals as a kid, even taking me out of school early once or twice to go downtown to see a matinee. Performance was and still is important to me, and I feel fortunate to be exposed to this culture as a kid. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to read this. There's other stuff, too, that I want to read, but the complexity of our relationship with people who are sick is one of the things that makes it so hard to determine is this salvageable how do i work on it how am i being you know am i the problem are they the problem are we both the problem you know do i have a right to do this and um i just think this uh like that person that would see your mom coming to take you out of school early, to take you to a matinee, would just immediately think that that, that mom is consistently probably like that in the rest of your life. And that's one of the things that is so hard with sick narcissists in our lives is that they do a good job of hiding it from people that they don't see every day, people outside of the family. Um, Darkest thoughts. When I am upset, I have very vivid thoughts of killing or seriously maiming myself in bizarre ways, like falling off of a ledge onto giant rotating blades or running through a field of scissors. Darkest secrets. I was the, quote, other woman when I was younger. Uh, I fooled around with but never slept with a friend who had a serious girlfriend. I was desperate for love and attention, and he made it clear I was just an, an accessory to his libido. Uh, that would be awkward if that if that was the the uh, phrase he actually used. Uh, I feel terrible about my role in their relationship, though she never found out, and terrible I let my vulnerability be taken advantage of. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to be able to explain to people why I can't take criticism or why I want to die if someone I love appears to be upset with me or mad at me. Right now, all I can do is just shut down, and it is hurting my relationships with people. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I wasn't so afraid of being vulnerable with people and that I could break down my wall of fear. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared some of these things with my therapist. One of the things we run into is that I find it hard to open up. I've been in therapy for years and only recently have started digging a bit bit deeper. It's hard. Um, I just wanted to give you a high five and say, after the nightmare that you went through with such a sick mom, that you can that you are breaking that cycle um, and that you are this aware of 
these ways that you're coping that you would like to improve, you know, for instance, shutting down and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But give yourself some credit. My God, you you are climbing out of a hole that your mom dug that is so fucking deep and you should be really proud of yourself. So be patient with the process. And I don't think anybody who experienced what you experienced would immediately be comfortable opening up. So sending you some love and a hug. This is a uh, shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself accepting it wasn't my fault has been the hardest. He is uh, bisexual in his 40s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, I was a bedwetter and my father would wake me up to take a piss with him. It wasn't until recently I realized he was exposing himself to me. When I was 10, he would start trying to get me to look at pornography with him. When I would close my eyes, he would say things like, look what kind of a pussy your mother made you. On a trip to Canada, he got extremely drunk and I didn't want to sleep in the same bed as him. He raged and ordered me to join him in bed by threatening to beat me. I was sitting on the couch and staring at my stepbrother and his friend in their bedroom. They just stared back. Fear made me go into the bedroom. I got into bed and he fucking spooned me while I laid there in abject terror the whole night. My mother and family did nothing when I reported his incestuous behavior towards my sister, so I never told them about this. I was punished for my normal reaction to terrible abuse, so I stopped going to adults for help. For help, It stopped for a while, but when I was 24, he started rubbing my back in front of other people like I was his girlfriend, so I broke contact. It's been 20 years, and I have never been happier to not have a father. Um... This is, if that wasn't fucked up enough, um, this might be Hall of Fame, one of the most fucked up things I've ever, I've ever read. Um, one Christmas Eve, um, my drunk father took me into a darkened room of my baby cousin's, uh, my baby cousin's darkened room, um, and left the door open so, so everyone could hear and challenged nine-year-old me to a fight. He shook me and poked his finger into my chest as I cried. Um, I was scared and confused because he was my father and I loved him. I looked at the floor the entire time because I knew he would hit me if I looked him in the eyes. He tried to goad me into a fight, asking me if I was a real man or a pussy. His mother, sister, and brother-in-law did nothing and acted like it wasn't happening. Uh, he eventually let me go. Uh... And then this, this is the thing that I was referring to, as if that isn't fucked up enough, that same Christmas Eve, after dinner and before the opening of presents, guess what movie he puts on? Faces of Death. Yeah. Oh my God. That is... Oh my God. Um... Any positive experiences with the abuser? There are a lot of memories that, quote, feel nice, but I now know they are seen through the lens of a boy that loved his father because he was projecting what he needed onto him. It caused a tremendous amount of grief, guilt, and confusion. After I went no contact, I would have dreams where everything was and always had been uh, nice, and I woke up being angry for feeling love for him. It took a lot of self-reflection, alone time, and therapy to realize the man I loved was really 
my projection of the father I wanted, which means it's the father I would be. That is when I realized I was really loving myself all those years, even from an insanely young age. That is when the healing began. That's one of the most profound things I've I've ever read and beautiful. Um, I, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I had that moment in my relationship with, with my mom when I realized the pain of cutting contact with her um, also had to do with that image I had created of her uh, as a child uh, was created because I needed to survive in that in that house. To, the truth would have, you know, the truth would have exploded our, our our little heads, but that you could see that it's the father that you will be um, is, or at least that you strive to be, is so beautiful and profound, and I want to thank you for uh, for sharing that. This is a happy moment filled out by Francis Halliday, and they are agender. And they write, several days ago after a tough shift, my managers pulled me aside and asked how I thought I was doing. I thought I thought I was doing pretty well, but obviously something was up. They went on to tell me my pacing just wasn't acceptable, that the other workers were picking up slack, and that we needed to figure out a way to help me pick up the pace. They approached it in a mostly constructive way, even telling me that my personality and people skills were great, that it was just this one thing that needed improvement, and that they didn't want to fire me. I just want to pause right there and high-five those those employers for doing that. So many people have no idea where they stand at, at work and are in an in, this is in an unnecessarily stressful um, environment, which I think would actually wind up hurting uh, production. Anyway, continuing. Uh, being the sensitive person I am, though, and being that this was the end of a stressful, overstimulating day and seeing as I was already very anxious about my financial situation, I had a panic attack right there in the grimy orange diner booth. These two straight shooter managers continuing to ask me questions about what course of action they could take to help me. I ended up wheezing in the back storage room for about an hour to try to collect myself so as to not show any weakness in front of my co-workers, who I described, uh, who I describe uncharitably as prison bitches. I apologized to my managers, telling them I knew I was overreacting, that I appreciated the feedback and opportunity to improve, and that this was just what happened sometimes. They seemed to understand. My happy moment wasn't this moment, but afterwards. Um, by the way, I think that's a happy moment too, that, that getting compassion from an employer, which I, you're seeing more and more now, uh, more and more now these days, and it's really awesome. Um, when I walked out with my head held high, that was my happy moment. When I went home and didn't berate myself for my quote failure or think of myself as a sack of shit, but took the perspective of an awesome friend I understood and empathized with myself, thinking things like, damn, what a day you just had. I ordered myself a pizza for the first time in months and let myself eat it in bed, watching Michael Scott make an ass of himself and dipping my cheese-stuffed death bread in ranch. 
I took out the trash and picked myself a flower bouquet on the way back because I seemed like I could use some cheering up right now. Thank you for that. That's really great. And I want to know where this cheese-stuffed bread is that you're talking about. Every time I see the uh, the pizza that has the uh, cheese uh, stuffed into the crust, I kind of like, ugh, that's so disgusting. And then a small part of me is like, oh, but I bet it's really good. Let's Let's go try it. Let's go try it. This is an email I got from somebody uh, who <laughs> calls themselves Master Sobbing to the Great British Bake Off. Uh, I love the Great British Bake Off. It's so good. The Master Sobbing is a term that we coined for uh, when you are eating uh, in shame and you're crying at the same time. Uh, oh, no, that's sob gobbling. Master Sobbing is when you're crying while you're jerking off. I get, I get our terms mixed up. And they write, uh, Hey, Paul, I didn't really know who else to talk to about this. I know there are a lot of people who can relate, and I plan on perusing the forum, but was hoping I could get some insight into treatment-resistant depression, which, as I've stated on the podcast, is what I have been dealing with for, for a long time. Um, I've been dealing with depression for almost a decade now and have worked through a vast array of medications. I'm feeling totally hopeless about finding some kind of relief, but what's worse is that this latest episode has heavily impacted my job performance. I work at a standard 9-to-5 type marketing job and have communicated to my bosses the nature of my depression and asked for some leniency. We've had some dozen meetings about my schedule since January, uh, but I've hardly been able to improve. My boss is trying to, quote, get depression, but I don't think she will ever really understand and is just continuously disappointed and passive about me, so I feel demoralized. I'm doing everything I can to try to manage my depression, therapy, meds, spirituality, but it's becoming clear that I might not be able to pull it together in time for my boss, who is getting more and more panicked and controlling about my schedule. Uh, do I need to accept that things might not change and quit my job or wait until I get fired? Finding some magical alternative with a flexible schedule? Is it even possible for someone like me to work a normal job or have a normal life? Do I need to eat more unfrosted Pop-Tarts as a part of medication routine? Just as long as you don't eat frosted Pop-Tarts. Uh, do you have any suggestions for treatment-resistant depression in regards to conventional jobs? You know, as I, as I also often say... Uh, I am not a therapist, um, but I would be happy to, to share what what has worked for me in dealing with my treatment-resistant depression. And so I wrote uh, them back and said, um, not being a psychiatrist, I'm not sure what to say um, other than here are the things. Uh, number one, uh, I don't beat myself up uh, no matter what is happening unless I'm recording the podcast and then all all is fair. Uh, we don't beat ourselves up when we have the flu and depression is a flu of sorts, uh, but because we don't sound congested, so many people don't understand the seriousness of it. Number two, be patient with the process of learning to manage your depression. It's a lot of trial and error. Number three, don't shame yourself for taking naps or not, quote, pushing yourself harder. There have been periods when I couldn't bring myself to open my mail for months. 
Number four, remember this isn't about laziness. This is about vitality. And depression is an illness that saps vitality and resilience. The author, uh, Andrew Solomon, put it best when he said, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. And the most important one is let your psychiatrist know everything that is going on with you. You might qualify for uh, disability even, uh, depending on what state you live in and uh, if he or she can verify uh, it. Uh, plus, they might be able to start thinking about other meds uh, for you to try. I tried about 15 different ones before I found the most current version that works well. Um, so hang in there, and you're, you're not alone. Sadly, you're not alone in dealing with that that type of depression. But the fact that you are working on what you do have control over is really, really huge. Um This is a happy moment filled out by shut up and let me find my depression funny. And she writes, in the past few years, I've still attended church, but I've become very progressive. At first, I kept a lot of my opinions quiet. During Pride Month, I decided to put up a Facebook status, expressing my love and pride for the LGBT plus community. I had a friend who was married with children from my religion private message me. She came out to me as bisexual, something she hadn't been able to tell many people. She fears people will not understand she still has desires unfulfilled, even though she has a loyal, sexually healthy relationship with her husband. Also, our church isn't exactly accepting. I felt relieved that the only reactions I got were positive ones. I half expected something rude. She told me that I was a, quote, safe person for her. It felt so good to be there for someone in such a difficult situation, but I also felt sorrow for her pain. So maybe it's awfulsome. It's so beautiful that 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 you that you put yourself out there, you know, at the the risk of um, being judged by others in that church, um, and it, you know, I think I think it, we're approaching a real watershed moment in our society uh, because more and more people are finding it. Not that difficult and not that scary to stand up for themselves or other people. And social media gets a bad rap, but one of the things that I love about it is, you know, we don't like, we like things to be convenient. A lot of times what stands between us and doing the right thing or something that makes the world a better place is honestly the convenience of it. And... um I'm I'm all for it. I'm all for it. This is I just want to read two parts of of this. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by Manic Pixie Dream Bitch and she's bisexual in her 20s was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment and uh, she she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported. She writes, I often feel like a quote bad victim because I have been extremely sexually active after being raped. When I'm in my worst states, I feel like if I just fuck the right person at the right time, it will somehow erase what happened to me. I also feel like part of my brain is permanently permanently stuck in his apartment in New York where he raped me, and I hate that it's hard for me to go to the city without feeling extremely nauseous, vulnerable, and on the verge of tears. Um, I hope you know that being... Um, 
promiscuous, whatever you want to call it, after sexual trauma is like textbook. It's it's a textbook way that a lot of people um, respond. Um, so I, I really hope you can stop shaming your yourself for that. Uh, darkest secrets. I've started cutting again after being in recovery for a few years. Recently, I realized that I'm a love addict and I'm terrified that in order to be considered in recovery, I'll have to cut myself off from any intimacy whatsoever, even the healthy kind, which is why I wanted to read this and say emphatically, not at all. Actually, what you work on when you go uh, to uh, programs that deal with um sex and love addiction is, you know, it's looked on as an intimacy disorder. So it's actually the thing that you wind up focusing on the most. But what you want, one of the things that on the surface may seem like you're denying yourself intimacy is part of the work involves learning to identify healthy intimacy from unhealthy, compulsive, trauma-driven uh, intimacy. And it would take me multiple shows to probably express what exactly that looks like. But um, I would I would check out Pia Melody's book, uh, Facing Love Addiction. And it, in my experience, the way that it has worked for me is by developing platonic intimacy with people. And then that gives you a standard against which future relationships can be judged healthy or unhealthy. Um, I hope that makes sense. So it would be a great place, a great place to, uh, you know, even if you don't wind up liking it or going back, at least check it out. I don't think I'm going to make it through all of these. I'm going to go to the last one. I'll, I'll, I'll share the fear that's going through my head right now is that we have uh, supposedly uh, Apple uh, is going to put this like in the next couple of days, put the podcast on their new and noteworthy, which means we will get some new listeners. And uh, my fear is that the length of this episode will keep people from clicking on it because right now we're at 150 minutes, which is just short of uh, three hours. And uh, and I'm tired, honestly. Um, it's been a long day. Um, I'm still trying to find a place to live, and it's stressful. Um, I have to leave my apartment and I don't want to because I like it and yeah I don't need to justify why I want to stop the episode alright here's the last thing I want to read and by the way can I thank you guys how for for how supportive your emails and tweets and stuff are when I share that I'm going through something on the podcast. It just, it's so nice. You know, I I mean, I have a support network uh, around me and my support groups and my friends and stuff like that. But um, 
I don't know, sometimes when love comes from a complete stranger, there's something really, really beautiful about it. And um, that really touches me. This is a happy moment filled out by Error and Validated Operator. And he writes, Last week I was chatting with my grandmother over coffee and I think she could tell I was unhappy. I'm struggling a lot in my life right now, but I was trying not to let it show. I've distanced myself from my family recently because an abusive individual who harmed me a lot as a child is still present and I'm tired of denying it. My grandmother finally just asked me, what did we do so wrong? What should we have done for you? I declined to answer a couple times, but she insisted. So I finally just poured my heart out and she listened. She didn't always follow me, but she let me speak and tried to understand. She's 87 and can hardly hear, but finally someone in my family actually wanted to listen to me. There were tears in her eyes, but she's an old-fashioned Southern lady and she kept her composure. And when I was done, all she wanted to know was whether I was getting help and if there was anything they could do for me. I went home and cried and cried. It felt like someone had lifted a hundred pounds off my back. Everything didn't suddenly turn out okay, and I still have a lot of recovery to do. But for once in the history of this family, we really talked about something hard. And for the first time in my life, I actually felt believed. Man, that is powerful. That... uh Although I have to apologize that I was picturing uh, Jessica Tandy as your grandmother and that right after you finished sharing that stuff with her, she had uh, her chauffeur driver to go make water. But other than that, now seriously, that, that, um, I think all of us listening to, to that, um, felt felt that feeling that I think so many of us long for, which is to be accepted as we are right now with having to put on a mask, having to do, to be extraordinary or hide some part of ourselves to, to get love. Um, and for somebody to just listen and to feel our pain. You know, the few times in, in, support groups when I've cried while I'm sharing, looking up and seeing other people cry with you is uh, one of the most healing experiences um, I think you can you can have. So thank you for sharing that with us. Well, uh, I hope you guys heard something that helped you, inspired you, entertained you. Actually, let's put the bar even lower. I hope that this thing didn't bore the fuck out of you. How's that? How's that for shooting for the moon? Um, just remember, you're not alone. It doesn't matter what you're feeling inside. There is somebody else probably within a 100 feet of you feeling that same thing. What matters is what we do with those feelings and whether or not we reach out and let somebody know what's going on with us. And I'm glad I did so I could 
be here to share all of your stories. And that means a lot to me. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.